that's why when you hear when you get caught up in this space and you hear the maximalist saying everything else is crap, everything's a shit coin <laughs> compared to you know Bitcoin. Um, there's so much development happening um, with good intentions, and the, the easiest way and one a few lines that I tell people of like Bitcoin biggest currency always going to be there. It, it's the foundation. However. The reason why you started getting Litecoin and some of these other things is because people want to influence some kind of change or have ideas and they make something else. They fork it. They they can have influence on making those new features. A lot of these cryptocurrencies that are in your top 20 are trying to perform a function of some sort. And it's because they needed to have the influence on the system to be able to make those changes. So it is literally no different than having multiple projects because you need to own that project and you, need, you want to provide value in some way. So a lot of these... Uh, different projects that are doing that are doing it on those grounds. I mean, the developers that are there are not trying to be malicious. They're trying to build something and they have influence on being able to get that into their network. Um, why Dr. Gavin Wood moved away from Ethereum, from Vitalik, right? He went and made Polkadot. Uh, Charles Hodgson, also Ethereum founder, moved on and made Cardano, right? They had different ideas of how the platform should run. And lo and behold, they made their own platforms, <laughs> you know, and inspired others to be part of it. It's not just them, right? They're just, you need a leader in things um, to give not just direction. It's not you know, totalitarian, right? It's more of like a vision and purpose. And, you know, sometimes it's just taking uh, when I would run projects, I'd walk in there and everybody's kind of doing their thing, but I'd make sure they have everything block tackle, you know, things for them and just get what they need. Um, and sometimes give them, uh, you know, the inspiration, like, Hey, we all know why we're here, right? <laughs> you know, what we're trying to accomplish. Okay, Jeff, we have another special episode today. Uh, we have another guest. Well, that's very good news. Very good news. So with us on the show today is Michael Carter, AKA Bits Be Trippin'. Carter is a longtime YouTube and Twitch creator. He covers the world of cryptocurrency mining. Uh, he's been doing YouTube videos for, at this point, I think almost approaching a decade. He's made hundreds of videos talking about crypto coins and mining and all of that. Uh, I will have links to all of his stuff down in the show notes. Um, if you want to actually learn the real facts about crypto, I highly recommend you you go listen to, to what he's created. Because one of the things that I love most about what he does is he's not just a hype channel. There are a lot of those that are out there. I mean, they're good. They have their place. But I see a vast need in having actual real deep dives into the technology because there's a lot that's not known. There's a lot that's misunderstood. While it's great to you know watch those videos where somebody's like, I made X amount of thousand dollars this week. You can too, or buy this coin and get rich. Carter actually digs in to the explanations. And there's been a few times in his live streams that I've watched, he'll just be talking and explaining something that somebody asked. And like in the middle of his sentence, he'll be like, hold up, hold on, let me get up the spreadsheet. Let me show you what I'm talking about. And he'll bring up the spreadsheet. He'll pull down the live, the live data of what the values are right now, what the hash rates are and edit the spreadsheet live to show, I'm not just saying this, here's the math. And you can see that this is what comes out. That the first time I saw him do that, I was like, Yes, I love data. I love seeing the numbers. And he went that far and does that routinely. So if anybody's out there is interested in the technology side of it, definitely follow Carter. So Carter, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. For sure. Yeah, it was a good in intro too. Sometimes, you know, you get that that, that vision where you, you kind of you're kind of just doing your thing and you're not realizing, you know, some of the impacts that it could have. 
Uh, you know, and I try to make it very organic, especially in the live streams. I've really leaned into a lot of the live streams because I think you do you can manifest a lot more uh, knowledge transfer or just look at and give you a perspective to, you know, being in the space for as long as I have. I mean, I collect a lot of stuff. I listen to a lot of different people, hear their perspectives, and I'm trying to tackle a lot of different innovation that's coming to this space, not just in Bitcoin, but in just a lot of the other cryptocurrencies. What are they trying to bring? And, you know, sometimes in those live streams, it gets pulled out of you. Right. You know, people ask a question and it kind of triggers something like, hey, yeah, let's go there. Let's go there on this stream today. Um, so, yeah, I know it's a, it was a good, uh, good intro. The reason I wanted to, to bring Carter onto the show and talk to him is because we, Jeff and I already did an episode on the developer user interaction because mm -hmm. I'm an open source developer. Jeff does open source developments. Mm -hmm. uh, Carter, I know you've done development. Yep. You have development experience as well. So that's what I'm familiar with. That's what the majority of our listeners are experienced with mm -hmm. is that kind of that, that relationship, which I'll give a quick overview of. And then I want to kind of toss the mic to you so you can explain all the various things on the crypto side, because it's a much more complex system. On the regular open source side, you know, the, the relationship between a developer and a user is, I would say roughly probably 95%, 5%. So the developer is 95% of the effort. Everything relies on them. The feedback, the users will give feedback, they'll create bug tickets and all that stuff, which is very good and very helpful. But the impact on the software itself it has a minimal impact. The software can work without those users. So like uh, the Lumina desktop that I work on, the, the Lumina desktop is gonna work as software regardless of what any of my users do. It, it might only work on my computer, but it's going to work, it's gonna function. Um, yep. So it's, it's a very one-way street in that way with the work and the effort. And again, while I as the developer get feedback and I take advantage of what the users can give me, I'm not reliant on them. Where in, in the crypto space, that's completely different because you have the developers who are writing the cryptocurrency code for how the currency and the coin operates. And in a proof of work system, you then have the miners who kind of effectively make it actually work. And then you have the layer two developers, and then you have the layer two users, and then you have the people who are just using the currency. And of course, that also covers the miners and the layer two developers and the layer two users. So it's much more broad and spread out. And it, that's not just a, a one-way street. It's definitely give yeah. and take with everybody. Yeah. And that really stood out to me as being very different. And some of the stuff we'll get into later kind of highlighted what happens when there's kind of a disagreement on focus and direction. And that was really interesting. So we'll get on that uh, in a moment. But to, to start off, to give everyone kind of a baseline, I figured for our listeners, some of them aren't really into crypto, that we should kind of give a, a brief overview of some of the terms that we're going to use. For sure. um, so like if you could give us a quick kind of overview of what proof yeah. of work is, how it works, you know, what do the miners provide to the network um, and how, how that kind of works right now? Yeah. So it's a, it's an interesting thing. And it's really kind of what uh, attracted me for, I mean, the very first part when I got into the crypto space, it was very uh, attracting from this concept of decentralization being in a very centralized kind of environment. Cause a lot of the development I was coming from and what got me in initially was I was working on a, a DOD project work for general dynamics as my primary uh, role for a long time. And we were looking at, you know, single sign-on and how to how to authenticate things. And I got it, I found uh, through a cryptography forum, Bitcoin, and then I, it got me down this whole path that was trying to take this basic concept of what was the layer separation? You know, what what was a miner? What What is the node? What's processing the transactions? You know, because I was trying to 
I saw the game theory part of it, but I didn't understand on how the information was being held. And then the separation of like kind of church and state with the way the consensus algorithm reinforces the, you know, the content that's in the ledger and then the nodes hosting essentially the card catalog as it were, right? Like all what happened with the transactions. And when you have things like Bitcoin, where it's, I would call it kind of, I don't want to call it linear, but it's layer one is pretty straightforward. UTXO outputs, um, you have a ledger that's keeping this information as it were the database. And then you have consensus that that wins the right to, to mint new blocks, right? You have something like Ethereum, which is more of a platform, which has a scripting and writing language. So from a developer standpoint, a lot of their effort, and you'll see that in, in a lot of the arguments that's occurred re- recently with with the algorithm being held up by, you know, the consensus side and then the node side and the users, as it were, kind of winning these newest arguments is because a lot of the smart contract architecture, the development that's in that space is in the node. It's in the actual operation of Ethereum. The consensus layer, the layer one layer is just the miners are reinforcing the network. They're just the security layer, right? So the miners, while very important, that consensus layer now with Ethereum moving towards a proof of stake kind of concept is saying, hey, we can switch out the security layer, they well, think. We haven't had that proven all the way out yet. But but a lot of the node, the, the smart contract language, the reference data, the, the three databases, as it were, that sit with Ethereum, you know, Bitcoin being one database really, and then Ethereum having kind of three, it has a state, a state uh, channel. Um, database. It has, you know, the reference of inf- information uh, of the ledger itself as a database structure. Um, it, you know, it's a lot more complex. Um, so, but a lot of that sets up in the node. And that's why they're saying, you know, hey, the nodes can can build consensus. And all that happens is if you have a consensus split is the miners will mine either side of the chain and you'll have a split. But the node and where the users interact for is the kind of winner. Right. And that's how that's actually how Bitcoin worked, too, when it came to the user activated soft fork, whenever the SegWit stuff was going on back in 2017 and you had Bitcoin cash split off. Um, It all comes down to this this premise that you can have consensus in the mining hash bar that's doing the security. It's just the security layer. You can have a lot of users that actually control the network um, from the nodes. If the nodes don't flag for a change, then, you know, the miners are just, which one do I point to? They're just providing the security. So the users in the node structure have really the quote unquote power. It's just the mining can split things, right? Uh, And it kind of works, I guess, like in like Git, it's like having different branches, right? And like, which one do we agree on is the actual master, right? And that Mm kind of thing. So, um, you can that's just a decision point but really the 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 developers the efforts really set on that kind of node and uh infrastructure side that's why like on those conversations we had with like 1559 and i got pulled in um for some of that discussion it was like i was trying to provide the perspective of like the general miner and just because a lot of people didn't understand like well we control the network we're the miners and it's like well the developers all of the the node architecture all are wanting this one thing, and then why we'll have a split with the mining. So some portion of that mining is going to move with that split, and effectively the nodes plus those miners are going to be the network, right? And then you're going to have the other miners just forking off with no developer support. Um, so, yeah, it's it's for people that are – I'm trying to articulate this in a way from a developer that's never really looked at, like, data structure or anything to do with, like, crypto – you know, that's really what it comes down to. So, um, you know, the mining is, I'd call it the more linear um, basis. There's not a lot to it. Um, 
by comparison to the node and then the op codes and everything that are part of the the rest of the network. But you know, it's it's awesome, but it's funny because it's one of the most fundamental, important things of the networks. And just a video I just did a live stream today was explaining how you know Bitcoin's number one and like it's number one from a a sizing from uh, a orders of magnitude more proof of work. And then that ironically, that proof of work and that order of magnitude is like an arms race. And because it's now so big, it's that much harder to try to attack. Right. And then if the premise of all the information that's sitting on it is reinforced by this thing that can't be changed, then that's what gives it some of the strongest value. You represent power, you know, usage as your labor side to the currency side of extraction of value. Right. So you it all comes back to where that mining is super important and reinforcement of the network. But um, that's why it gets confused because people put so much on the mining. like if mining breaks, then the security has gone. Then the thing we're working on, it doesn't have as much value now because okay. it can be manipulated or changed. Mm-hmm. But I like to try to separate, you know, those things. So I think that there's kind of a general thought process for people outside of mining that, you know, how the ledger works, you have all the transactions that are reported, they go into the ledger, and then all the miners are then calculating to find out, okay, what's what's the magic number that we can put in that'll make the hash then match a certain thing? And then whoever finds that... Yeah, they're just winning the right to take whatever's in the mempool and then include, based on how they're ordering and sorting the transactions, to include mm-hmm. in the next block and then provide the next key the next series of mining so it's just a it's a it's a game of try to find the right to win mm-hmm. uh, the opportunity to take all those transactions and, and then them into the next block so i guess the obvious question is hypothetically if mm-hmm. every miner so this is use bitcoin example just turned off their mining rigs mm-hmm. what would be providing the consensus at that point would it just be the individual nodes do they still have that functionality built in uh no technically uh, uh, People could still submit transactions. They would just sit in a memory pool and okay. they would just fill that memory pool and nothing would move forward. So there would be a ton of things going on from the node side of monitoring the mempool, mm-hmm. um, but there would be no new blocks to include uh, a, the next state of change, right? So right. The, the, the miners, all, miners all run nodes, essentially. Mm-hmm. So they run their own node. And then when they win, you know, they're taking hash hash rate, which is essentially like, and I was explaining this in a few other videos back to people. Um, what happens is we all get the same problem. Everybody's working on the same exact problem at the same exact time, right? And we're all right. trying to get, to get this answer. And sometimes there's race conditions, right? You know, I would talk on the development side. Like two miners can find the same exact solution literally within microseconds of each other. And they both provide the same result. And mm-hmm. it's a race condition on the nodes to find out, okay, who's going to win? And at some point, enough win, and what you'll have is y'all have orphan information. Now, in some blockchains like Ethereum, they pay you for the orphan, right? They pay you for some of that effort. They mm-hmm. so the orphan gets paid too, right? So, but the you know in Bitcoin, it's just orphaned work. It's uh, from a miner standpoint, it's like stale shares. Like, hey, this doesn't matter anymore. Move on. Um, but yeah, you have. Um, it wouldn't move forward. And then there's like other rules within the chain, which is part of its uh, its core structure that say, depending on like if a whole bunch of hash rate comes off, the blocks just get longer. So like why Bitcoin has a thing and they're saying it's 10 minutes, that's a statistical variable based on its difficulty, right? So mm-hmm. sometimes you'll look and you'll look at block times, sometimes they're like three minutes and then they go to like 27 minutes. When you average it over a long series of blocks, it gets around 10 minutes. Right. Unless you have a situation where you have a lot of hash power come off 
Bitcoin doesn't switch um, its difficulty adjustment after so many blocks. So there's been times like when China had the whole power outage um, out in one of the provinces, like block time shot up to like 40, 50 minutes, like, and there was no movement. And so that just fills the mem queue. And then what happens is you have most wallets won't let you go and resubmit a transaction. You have to go and do something else and you can pay more. And what you had is like all these people like running up, you know, just resubmitting a transaction, which would invalidate their previous transaction with a higher cost because they were trying to get the next uh, right. position to be included. And then from a miner standpoint, the miners locally run a uh, essentially an order listing, um, like a transaction list, as it were, predicated on the highest pay, right? Because you're trying to maximize your value. On Ethereum, there's this whole thing called like a dark forest because there's so much more integrated uh, movement. It's not just about the Ethereum generation on the network from like a, an incentive structure. There's also layered transactions because of all of the ERC-20 infrastructure that's under it, which is the sub-network of uh, all these tokens. And you have the token economies trying to also include their transactions and they come with a fee, right? Mm -hmm. So you have the generation of just general movement of a coin on a network within those, you know, Ethereum's like 15 second block time, Bitcoin's 10 minute block time. So you have all these that uh, the dark forest for like Ethereum is you'll have all the front running that happens where there, now there's this kind of MEV, which is minor extracted value um, activity where miners now, like the larger miners look at it and go, we, if we can keep some side money to the, you know, off, we can watch the transaction and we can actually front run that transaction with our own money. And then, I mean, we could get into a whole thing with like sandwich bots and other bots that are looking for that same kind of activity and trying to front run them after doing that. Um, but like it, it's a, it's a grand equalizer in game theory at the end of the day, mm -hmm. because you have all this public and you have all this behavior, which is normally front running happening. And it's ultimately going to end up into a place to where, Either that stuff's going to be so good and it's going to come down to just like New York had with everybody getting as close as they could to the, you know, the, their, uh, you know, uh, Bloomberg terminals to be like, a, you know, seconds from me or nanoseconds from each other to where you're going to have bots, you know, all geolocated around the world to make sure that they can, whoever the winner of the block is, they can get ahead of it and stuff. But I mean, that's just natural order at the end of the day of like mm -hmm. the way they're going to settle out. But yeah, again, another key piece for uh, transaction ordering and stuff for like the minor side. So since we've we've gotten to block rewards, that then of course brings us directly to the the issue that kind of started this whole my curiosity into the relationship mm -hmm. is EIP fifteen fifty nine, which uh -huh. was the developers changing the way block rewards work, uh -huh. and obviously the miners who are mining and doing all this stuff and providing security looking at it going, hold on a second, we should get this amount, and now you're changing the game on us, and we're going to get this amount, and we don't quite like that. So for those who don't know what EIP-1559 is, can you kind of give us a quick uh, overview of like the way it worked before that goes in, and then yep. how EIP-1559 changes it? Yeah, for sure. So EIP, which is an Ethereum improvement plan, so it's just like any other kind of, like if you're a developer and you're, you have a ticketing system, you're using Jira or something, uh, you know, it's the same kind of concept. It's just, it's an open, um, you know, public, I mean, I would dare to call ETH a FOSS, right? Because there's a lot of influence, you know, from FOSS being, you know, like free and open source um, because there's a lot of governance in Ethereum and decision-making. But like, 
you have their, you know, VIPs, Bitcoin improvement plans, EIPs, Bitcoin, uh, Ethereum improvement plans. Um, so 1559 was just the number um, associated to that. And within that was uh, kind of a, a handful of things that were positive um, enhancements to some of the opcodes and some of the, the way gas and prediction works. But in there, they kind of like earmarked, as I like to call it, a, a, a fundamental change on the way the monetary system works with uh, Ethereum. And Ethereum has been a node. They've been a known um, path. They've had a known path that they were going to over time unscheduled reduction in, in emission. So a lot of these cryptocurrencies um, have usually fixed supplies and then an emission schedule. And like with Bitcoin, it has. With Ethereum, Ethereum has no upper limit. So the base premise of Ethereum initially was it's going to be fuel. You're going to lock certain amounts of Ethereum sometimes up in a contract that could be burned. And it's like the proof of burn is the order you know, that you executed it. So there was an expense for that that's not distributed. And so you had no upper limit because you wouldn't want to run out of supply. It would just, you'd have a supply, uh, a huge price discovery, and then nobody would be able to afford to use it. Um, well, what ended up happening is, is they, they, they took the base fee. So you have a basic fee structure. And instead of reducing the, the mining reward emission, which they've done before, it was at five coins when it first came out, it went down to four, um, or it went down to three, and then it went down to two, right? So they, they've, they moved it in November of 17. They took it from five coins every 15 seconds emissioned to the uh, miners down to three coins. And then in um, 2019 or 2018, they, they took it again down to two coins on the emission schedule. And mind you, this was like, like when it was at one of its lowest points mm -hmm. um, price wise uh, over like a three year schedule, it went down to like $86 a coin from like 1500. And then they, they cut an emission out, which really has a direct effect on um, yields for miners um, with the premise that, Hey, we're reducing the emission schedule. There's going to be less selling pressure from miners, which should drive the price in both times. And never part of the initial argument on our side from the miner side was, Hey, both times you've done this, there was no data on chain nor in price discovery that price changed to, you know, went up. And I'm like, that's an assumption. You're making basic assumptions that you're going to, you're going to artificially move the price up, but you have no upper limit. So you're, you're part of that is a fatal flaw from a supply demand dynamic when you have no upper limit. So it's like, okay, you've just held off emissions to have less, maybe selling pressure, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to drive price. That was a part part one of the first things. Well, on this one, instead of dropping the the two uh, emission schedule, they kept the two coins per 15 seconds. But one of the largest um, revenue sources right now for miners is the fact that there's a lot of activity on Ethereum and part of the transaction fees and the same way Bitcoin transactions fees work is the transactions that happen within that block time and are stuffed into those blocks, you pay and people pay uh, a small amount of uh, transaction fee. Well, those transaction fees for Ethereum in the last, you know, six to seven months have been making up almost double what the current emission is. So it's not an increase in supply. So the supply curve stays flat, you know, it stays at the same angle that it's been with the two per 15 seconds. But the movement of coin on chain goes into miners' pockets. And part of their, their argument was that we want, we'd rather burn that which then would potentially sometimes exceed the two on the emission schedule, thereby causing a deflationary effect. So the average, I think at the time when they were um, 
going through this in February of this year, the average block reward was around uh, 2.3 to 3 coins, and then the emission was 2. So you would have a net negative of 1 being burned out of the system every 15 seconds. And, you know, people can do math on that. They're like, hey, there's four blocks every minute, you know, 60 minutes in a day, you know, times that. So they're like, this would be thousands of ETH potentially burned every day if that's kept the same schedule. And this is a very, uh, you know, price discovery kind of uh, movement. Um, so if you're a holder or an investor, this is a big deal, right? Because like you, you could get a better, um, you know, you, you'd have this tell off on a mission and possibly reduction. Um, and so this is the way it was kind of sold. Now I looked at it like, okay, like the two other times it's been reduced, this is obviously going to hit our uh, bottom line for being a miner. However, let's look at this pragmatically. What's it really look at? What are the dynamics? What would ETH have to go to to kind of make up that difference if yields are dropped by X amount, 30% or 40%, and then price goes up 50%, uh, you know, then we're net positive on this, right? So I was trying to take a pragmatic look at it, but I was like, I didn't see any of the statistics coming out of it. So I didn't see... I, I saw like the game theory that if the miners would revolt, but I didn't see like, what if, you know, you had this large growth in price, you'd have a lot more miners on, and then you tell this off. And if it's making up 50% of its value uh, and it's just cut immediately, because when a hard fork goes in, it's just like a software release, right? You're going to whatever version, it's a flash to bang. You're on that new version with new things. It's the same thing on, on an emission schedule. Once they go with 1559, you would have this this immediate effect. So when you when in cryptocurrency and people that are are mining, it's not like you don't have instant drops usually unless like a power goes out, right, or something right. of like having hash rate drop off. And usually that comes right back on because the incentive's still there. If you pull the incentive out, I wanted to have all these different scenarios um, of like if the price was high. And it went away by 40%. If the price was low and it went away by 40%, what would happen, you know, with this? So I try to present that argument of like, hey, there's three of 10 scenarios that I've ran here that are potentially dangerous to Ethereum um, because it all comes back down to incentive and force projection um, uh, with mining, right? So there's one dynamic we haven't talked about here, which is the brokerage services that are set up. Um, such as NiceHash, which actually pay you for your hash rate, sometimes at an overmarket price, for whatever reason. It's it's uh, there's people that maybe have some kind of insight or something, or they're taking a, a calculated risk on a other network, and they'll pay in Bitcoin more than the going rate for your hash rate. So, as miners that are sitting there, if you had this situation where you potentially lose fifty percent of your revenue on the day that the fifteen fifty nine comes out. And then you have this other opportunist that makes a buy order for making up the difference, plus maybe more, they may be able to take that disenfranchised hash rate and, and buy it up and potentially attack Ethereum. And I wanted to say, I'm like, this isn't, this wasn't, if this could happen, like in some kind of game theory world, because it's happened on multiple networks, right? We've had... Um, Vertcoin, we've had Ravencoin, we've had uh, almost every major network besides Ethereum and Bitcoin be 51% attacked at some mm -hmm. point. That's you know, so that was the risk. Um, and the numbers, there was three scenarios that really showed those numbers that that could happen. And the value cost of that would be you know, 2.2 to to four million dollars, which is nothing when you're looking at multi-billion-dollar networks. You know, what if there's a pro Cardano person or a pro uh, 
you know, Tron person that just is like, you know what, I gain the most if Ethereum has some kind of bad situation. If the opportunity is there, there's no reason to think that somebody wouldn't take that opportunity um, to try to, you know, short Ethereum and long, you know, Polkadot or whatever. And um, that was that was the main concern as an Ethereum holder, as an Ethereum that's going to probably participate in 2.0 as just from the science of it, probably with at least one node. You know, I wanted to at least make it known because I wasn't seeing the argument. Um, But of course, you know, being a miner, um, you know, the argument was a lot skewed um, by like the the intentions and that kind of thing. But, you know, I I always believe the data and the, you know, it's observe and report, you know, and people can make of it what they will and um, punch holes through it. But, you know, that was really the kind of premise. When when I first started noticing all of the the fanfare, I guess I'll put a positive spin on it. The fanfare around uh, 1559, (laughs) I would say the majority of it was solely looking at it from the financial perspective of miners with the limited perspective of, you know, if the price stays the same, like, oh, we're not getting as much ETH. And if the price stays the same, then therefore we lose. Where obviously, like you mentioned, there's the game theoretic aspect where, well, yeah, if you don't make as much, but what you do make is worth more, like mm-hmm. Bugatti doesn't sell many cars, but the ones mm-hmm. that they do sell, they make a whole yeah. lot of money on. So yeah, the they're, margin, they're right. profitable. Yeah. And yeah. So I also liked it during your, your uh, streams that you did on it and the discussions you did, you went into the 51% issue and yeah. most people focus on the 51% issue strictly from someone within the network trying oh. to do something malicious. And the point you brought up about someone external to the network trying to harm the network for their own benefit is actually that's going to come back in a later discussion as we get down into more things. Um, But obviously the community, well, I should say the minor community wasn't Uh wasn't too much of a fan of this proposal. Um, And, you know, to be clear, I'm not going to call anyone out. I'm not trying to identify anyone and throw them under the bus. There there was that, uh, you know, minor show of force comment that went out, which when I first heard that, I thought, oh, that's not going to be taken the way you want that to be taken. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. So for some backstory, I was in the Air Force, and I kind of cringe when civilians use some military parlance because they're very specific. They have very specific meaning. Mm-hmm. And like a show of force in the military mindset is mm-hmm. like, for instance, if a carrier battle group is cruising through someone's territorial waters, that is mm-hmm. a show of force. You know, we're only going to do that with someone we already have hostilities against. We're not going to take a carrier battle group and cruise by Britain just to be like, look at our nice, pretty boats. Mm-hmm. We will do that in the South China Sea when we need to make a statement. So mm-hmm. a show of force is is literally the rattling of the saber of we're already on bad terms. Mm-hmm. We don't want this to get worse because if it does, this stuff right here is going to obliterate you. Mm-hmm. But I, I see a lot of people using that as just kind of like a, hey, we want to get your attention so we can talk. And it's mm, that's not really the way that's going to be taken. Yeah. It's an aggressive stance. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if, if I'm understanding this correct, you actually put forth an alternative to 1559, uh-huh. correct? Correct. Yep. Okay. What was that? How was it received? I believe it was rejected, but. Like, was there any positive feedback from that? Yeah, they listened to it. So it was, well, they, they read it. They brought it as part of the normal EIP process. So it was EIP 3363, I believe, or 69. I can't remember now. It's been a minute. Um, but it was uh, related to uh, an adju- uh, a potential adjustment is like a, like a, I don't call it a poison pill, but it was something in the back pocket. So the basic premise is that it would be there. It would be ready to deploy. It would be part of wrapped up as part of 1559. It would be deployed with the code, but not activated. And what it was is showing that if we did have a situation with one of those scenarios playing out, which 
ironically, you know, uh, I think the price was around what it is now, and it was it was driving up to over three grand at the time, and then it went all the way up to like forty three hundred. So it looked like, hey, it's going to kick this curve in like scenario three, where it's just people are buying the news, maybe selling the event, who knows? But um, uh, as it started to pull, now it's started to pull back down. It's that kind of thing where if we got into a place to where 1559 came out and for whatever reason, existential government regulation, whatever, um, the price came down heavy. And then you also cut rewards by half. Like let's say price went down to $700, you know, market gets back into a kind of a bearish trend. You know, Bitcoin comes back down to 25,000. Ethereum goes back down to, you know, less than a thousand. We would have this situation where you're still cutting out half the base fee which uh, you know, in, in a volatile market, Ethereum gets lots of fees because people are doing a lot with it. They're maybe divesting in positions or maybe buying more. So there's a lot of fees. And that fee is making up a lot of the, the available hash rate that's out there that's on it. So if you cut that also with price being heavily cut, you now run into one of those, those really uh, unfortunate scenarios. So I wanted to have an EIP in place already because the way the EIPs work is just like any other code review, anybody in development, you, if you're going through a, you know, from development to production, and especially, and I'll use the government as being part of the government, that, that's not, that's not a, an agile flash to bank process <laughs> on some stuff, especially C2 systems and stuff. Like it, it takes a while. Sometimes those are like biannual events, right? So Ethereum works really in a, like a biannual event at its best case where it will not put anything into production maybe six months hard forks. I think the, right now they're at yearly hard forks, right? So it's very monolithic in its release process. But I wanted something that went through the the rigor that they go through, having it part of test nets and just having it dormant in there because I know that it couldn't react fast. So it was like, let's get it in there. And this would raise the block reward initially up by one. So what it was poised to do is take out that hit that if you know if miners are used to uh, you know forming around that three ETH three point five ETH uh, actual reward, it would have moved them from two to three naturally, but then tailed down to one over a two year schedule. So the emission, because I knew that that would be one of the biggest points of condition uh, your contention, is the total emission schedule over one or over the two years is the same. It's just you're getting more up front and you're telling it off down to one, which which allows the most efficient miners to effectively stay in, in play, which ironically is really the, the ASICs in play right now, but it, it, it gets it off and it's measurable. We know what's to occur because that's been part of the biggest content uh, discontention with Ethereum is that miners read the white paper, ASIC resistant. They didn't hold that up. They said, well, hey, we may tell off some, some uh, ETH, but no schedule and then just drop it, you know, like, Three months out, like, hey, we're gonna, we're also gonna drop the ETH reward, which is what they did effectively in October um, of seventeen, saying, hey, we're also gonna reduce the ETH, mm-hmm. ETH reward, right? And it happened in November. It was just kind of thrown in because it wasn't that much of a a change to change the the block reward. And it's like, well, wait a minute here. You're, you, I mean, like, people are investing capital, securing the network. Uh, miners are writing development stuff because the mining community is more than just the individual and the hardware. There's pool infrastructure. There's uh, the brokerage infrastructure I was talking about. There's a lot of infrastructure that gets put around that. Uh, you know, uh, from the software side, there's uh, data and telemetry stuff when it comes to like hash rate and uh, node structure and stuff that's paid for by the miners that that put out that kind of content. And it's like 
you, when you change the incentive mechanism out of the, out of the gate and you're, you're effectively just, it's a taxation on, on everybody and they're, the, the yields are just ripped away from you. So part of this was that promotion of, we would know three to one is a thing and we know that it's not moving for two years and you're not touching it. And I would say that even though that's a telling down to one, we at least know what's to come and you guys aren't messing around with it. Um, and it was, uh, you know, they heard it out and it was just, the outcry that came out um, from the whole investor uh, set was uh, pretty profound. They're like, "There's no way we're going to give miners even more, you know, money. Are you kidding me? Because they're going to have the fees plus this. I mean, even if the fees are getting, because uh, they're still going to be able to do MEV extraction. And that's when they really sold or was trying to sell to us the whole MEV. And like, well, how do you not know about MEV? And like, it's like." Uh, that that MEV extraction, that reordering and stuff, only happens at the pool. This isn't an individual miner. This isn't a home miner. This isn't even like us having you know twenty five hundred GPUs and we mine to a pool, right? But like we are not reordering and sorting transactions. We are not running a node and doing that in solo mining. These are the you know the 10, 12 entities that are out there on the planet that that hire resources to look at transaction ordering and all that and organize around that. So you're literally looking at only about 12 enterprises that are actually doing the MEV extraction, right? Um, so that's not a lot that really, so, but that's a huge discussion around it. And uh, that's not, I look at that as more of a, it's a natural order because people are always, if they're going to have advantage, going to take the most advantage. It's like water down a hill. It's going to find a way, right. but uh to promote that activity and innovation in that activity over, you know, a known schedule, which is kind of the foundation of the way uh, mm -hmm. incentive work with blockchain or with crypto in general, it was, it was very interesting to me. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. I mean, ETH was, uh, you got, you got to look at ETH um, from a lens that ETH was a, it was a pre-mine with part of it sold to a whole bunch of investors. I mean, so I, I'm not looking at like just a few founders are making money. There was a lot of investors in ETH that really gave it the foundation to build a lot of the stuff that's there. And those investors are going to have a lot of say because they have a lot of ETH and to maximize their value is what they want to see. They don't want to see more emission. They want to see less emission, right? So you can see the motives, um, uh, you know, around the foundation around that, um, and, you know, we're just existential in regards to their eyes, even though it's foundational from the security side. And I think that's always going to be this kind of tear, um, even as we get into 22 um, with the slip of any schedules that they have um, to move to proof of stake, you know. Yeah. So before we jump to proof of stake, uh, I had a question about MEV, because mm -hmm. in the past, when I would hear people talk about you know the, the game theoretic aspect of MEV and pools kind of looking for the, the transactions with the most payout and then putting those into the block and pushing others to the side mm -hmm. it was always kind of considered a dirty thing to do like you're not really supposed to do that that's kind of grimy don't do that and then with uh -huh. the with the mev thing with eth it kind of seemed from the outside like they're saying yeah this is really grimy behavior but we actually want to promote this really grimy behavior and now that everybody can do it it's okay like yeah <laughs> am i misinterpreting that or no you're you're, you're interpreting it right so it was one of those things that when you first learn about how you can you can change the order, um, like on a, like even a Bitcoin node of like what transactions you want, 
um, you're kind of like, well, why wouldn't I maximize my most value from the transactions that are posted there? But MEV adds a little more to it than just taking the most highest transaction and sorting it. It's it's reading a transaction and, and outperforming them by providing your own money and replicating that behavior. You know, like, oh, they're going to do that and they're going to get that arbitrage because I can read their whole contract. I'm going to do that, which is going to invalidate and change all the price schedule for them. And then I'm going to actually do that. So you're actually, you're, you're stealing it from people. Um, so that for them to glorify that is yes, a very grimy behavior. I think what it comes down to is that it, it's just bringing it out into the open mm-hmm. and because it's in the open and because everybody's now can quote unquote do it, it's kind of like a, a way to equalize the opportunity cost on that. I saw it first when I was, you know, in action from a, they called it a flash boys 2.0 presentation that was at ETH DevCon in Prague when I was there. And it was, you know, some uh, Carnegie Mellon, um, you know, uh, very finance fintech bros that had put together this algorithmic thing and showed like gas ordering and all this kind of uh, activity. The, essentially, the first part of ETH are, you know, uh, MEV, as it were, uh, you know, it's taking advantage of it. And they said, hey, we're going to we're going to open source this. We've made all kinds of money from it, but now we're going to open source this the people and because we feel that if if this is a thing that's going to happen there's no way to get around it it's just the way game theory is going to work so the best way to do it is just make it all open source and make everybody compete with other bots with each other and then you're going to have a sandwich tax and all this other stuff that you can um create uh uh, you know bad oracles that are giving wrong price data for a brandly new minted token and then it's going to look like a very uh positively liquided thing but then you can like pull the rug out from that token and now they're left with all of this you know bad token you know and you can create all this negative uh counter uh, acting uh, effects with it um i think it was easy i think the 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 shortest answer and easiest answer if we were answering something like a twitter answer i would say it was for them to promote it was a way to kind of take away from some of the argument and just say hey there is something you're not getting everything stolen from you um so I think it was just a quick, easy one for me. Oh, no, no, you're actually, if you if you go to the right pool, you're actually not going to be hit that hard. And it was kind of just this sleight of hand type of thing. Um, but it's now turned into where, you know, Flashbot's being a very open uh, source. You can, see the, you can see the results of that open source uh, coming out in the effect of like Etherpool and all these other places making reports of what they're doing for it. It kind of equalizes the environment now for it. and. I mean, I wouldn't want to be an independent trader. I mean, I think it changes the way they do trades now. If you're going to try to do flash loans and all that stuff, you you know going in that you're probably gonna you're probably gonna lose your wrapped ETH on transaction because somebody else is going to front run you. Um, you know, until there's some kind of shielded activity or some kind of shielded uh, side chaining stuff to make it, I, I think it's going to be a thing, um, and it's going to continue into a proof of stake until any of that's changed. Does any of the changes with 1559 does that change anything for layer two? developers and users or is it pretty transparent for them uh no it doesn't really so it's uh that's because that all the 1559 stuff is layer one okay um so that's just on the chain posting to chain on each of the transactions layer two is kind of like uh i always like using the, the layer two analogy it's a bar tab transaction mm-hmm. um so you know it's just making micro transactions and you'll have a later post so you have a separate ledger as it were keeping track of the balance sheet um, so there's a whole other level of gaming and stuff that could be eventually built on that, um, but it's a lot more federated. Um, 
uh, the better systems are federated over multiple entities, and then some are just straight centralized, right? Like Binance Smart Chain being uh, centralized, um, where Binance controls that. I mean, they have nodes, but they have a lot of influence on it to where, um, you know, they could ossificate a lot of that and you wouldn't know what's going on in the back end. Um, the, uh, uh, the layer two is going to be its own thing. Um, but yeah, a lot of the, the emission, the known state of earning over time and all that being on layer one is where a lot of that activity is going to occur. I mean, because the, the transaction fees, there's hardly any transaction fees on layer two. Part of it's just right. the volume, right? It's not really about gaming um, transaction fees and all that on layer two. So we we brought up um, that ETH is going to their, their 2.0, which is going to be proof of stake. That kind of stood out to me because let me let me sidestep here and, and say something. So I had heard about uh, Vitalik um, that when he one of the reasons he really got wanted to create ETH was because he wanted to create a system that, that wasn't centralized, that was distributed. And I've, I've read things where points that kind of motivated him for this was that he used to play WoW a lot and he had a character that he spent a lot of time on. And then Blizzard went and changed the rules and all of the work and effort that he had done was then kind of wiped off the table because now he had invested X amount of time and now people could do that same thing in less time. Yeah. So he was like, hold on, I don't like being people being able to change the rules after I've done all this stuff. But of course, now here we are with the change to ETH 2.0 going from proof of work to proof of stake. And it kind of seems like he's doing the exact same thing. I mean, there's people like yourself who have invested uh, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars in hardware and electricity and provided tons of service for securing the network. And yeah, you've gotten Ethan exchange. So you, you've gotten something yeah. out of it as well, but there's like, that's, there's not just you, there's tons of people around the world that have done this. And now they're kind of being told to me, it's kind of like, you know, so long and thanks for all the fish. We don't need you anymore. I, again, am I just seeing that kind of cynically or, and, and you don't have to answer if it's something that, that you don't want to get in trouble yeah, with no, anybody no, else. No, I'm, nothing, nothing by and large is off the table here. I mean, so, no, I mean, so for your first part, yes, Lytalic said a lot of uh, his interest in the space and what, I, I think it was more of an organic transition because he it, it got him away from looking at WoW and looking into something, you know, he took on writing articles for Bitcoin Magazine. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he got disenchanted from playing WoW. Uh, you know, I, I think they nerfed his warlock and he was, he was upset about <laughs> that. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think what it comes down to is he had a vision to make a decentralized platform mm -hmm. that things built on top of, and you would have this uh, on-ramp to, and by and large, you can, it's decentralized from the fact that you can come in, you can come and leave from the network as, you know, there's no KYC coming into the network and all that. Um, so there's no centralization of participation. Mm -hmm. The the fact that the back end, the decision-making of the, uh, rules as it were to the network that's the part that's gotten more kind of uh i would call it you know centralized ideologies that are then communicated and then you get you kind of convince part of the network to kind of follow you um but he he taught he's written to this thing called the trilemma which is decentralization um scalable and secure like mm -hmm. you can do one of those things really well you know, like Bitcoin's super decentralized. You're not changing Bitcoin's code, right? Like they haven't had a hard fork. They've only had soft forks. Um, the true uh, art of decentralization there where there's a lot more influence on something like Ethereum. I think part of that was by design because you, with the, 
the con they could have went not pre-mined, right? Mm-hmm. I, I know there, there was a decision point there that they weren't, but when they were doing their first raises, I think part of the direction, because they saw where Bitcoin was going with um, the, how hard to change things, they were looking at, we have a path that has several releases out. So it's kind of like when you're, you're forming you know, your first series of epics for something. Even if you're in an agile development space, you need to have like your, your MDRs, your model and design reviews. You gotta have like a concept where you're gonna go. And you may put those in different epics over time, and you're like, we can do the MVP here, the minimally viable product here, but then we're going to add these other features. The fact that they could get the MVP out probably being a super decentralized was a thing. But I think that his concern, and this has been the concern with, any, if you look at any other project short of probably Litecoin, maybe Monero, Ravencoin, uh, other decentralized um, uh, fair market launch, mm-hmm. you know, no pre-mine, um, uh, proof of work coins. Yeah, like short of those few that have had the opportunity to make development changes without trying to, you know, get into a Bitcoin situation where people won't really want to go with them. I think he was fearful that and Gavin Wood and Charles Totson and all the original designers were were fearful that if they did fair market launch, they wouldn't have the incentive to try to, you know, to convince these huge, these large holders to make uh, agreed upon changes that might be ho- node hosters. Okay. Right. So. They do the pre-mine, then they go, hey, we got, we still want to make it decentralized, allow people to kind of get into the ecosystem. And then that gave them enough leverage, I think, to on the system to when they were proposing some of these outer out, uh, these ideals, uh, new uh, adjustments to Ethereum, they had the incentive structure already outlaid. So the big investors, so all they really had to convince is those bigger token holders and those people that are hosting the nodes, mm-hmm. like, hey, this is a better thing for us. Let's go through this process that looks very transparent. Let's make changes to the network. And then you have the network shift. We've seen that in execution during the DAO fork, right? Because when the DAO happened, most of that early investment, because this was one of the big premises of the initially for Ethereum, being a platform as this decentralized organization, you had enough op codes, you had enough scripting structure to technically create a smart contract that could become this decentralized organization however when it went when there was a, f- a fatal flaw in it and all that money got transferred out most of that money was those, those early investors and we saw the power of that influence on that network at that time because it convinced enough to to fork the network however we saw also the premise of like where a lot of miners were like wait a minute no dude like how like we don't want to support that and there was a core of developers that said no we this goes against the ethos of, of like everything with crypto and they created Ethereum classic and kept the chain, mm-hmm. you know, out there. So um, I, I think it comes down to just the influence initially of the way Ethereum started. I think a lot of other coins have mimicked that. I mean, some have went just straight, we'll mint the entire supply, we'll distribute it like X. And now you have all these other different methodologies out there to influence the network, but it all comes back down to just trying to, own the project with regards to being able to update it. Not that you're trying to control the narrative of, and I try to separate that. And it's hard to do when you're talking to people because people are like, Oh no, they're, they're scammers. They're, right. they're screwing people. I'm looking at it pragmatically from like a developer standpoint, like, no, dude, they like, they need to update stuff. They want to add this scalability. They're going to have to have layer two stuff. They're going to need these other things to allow the, the interconnects, the like ABCIs, the application blockchain interfaces which are effectively like APIs, right? Um, to be able to do these Oracle services and all this other stuff that'll let you get other utility values out of it. 
But those are going to come later on. And how do you try to move the machine if you don't have some kind of influence on it? So it's just like, it's that trilemma, you know, am I decentralizing it? Am I trying to make it scalable? Am I trying to make it secure? You know, that kind of stuff, um, you know, from attacks and bugs and how do I control that narrative? But, um, you know, I think they all, they all work within it. It just disenfranchises people that had made calculated decisions and costs like all of us, you know, um, and then you go and change it. That's the change in the rules in the game. If you put a schedule out there, I think it's a much better play. Right. And I, I think it's worked for a lot of other coins that have done that. Because one of the things that has stood out to me with the, the moving to proof of stake is the th- obviously you have to have Ethereum to then earn anything when you're staking. And they've set the requirement when they go to proof of stake of a, a requirement of 32 ETH to be able to participate in that staking process to be able to earn any. That's a significant amount of money with the value of Ethereum. And obviously, if the price goes up, that's an even more significant amount. And when it was proof of work, anybody could, you know, go out. Well, before there was a GPU shortage, anybody could go out to Micro Center, buy a GPU, put it in their computer, join a pool and start making a little bit of money. They wouldn't make much, but they would make some. Yeah, it was Uh other than the cost of a GPU. You could get into the network without having to buy in. Whereas once Uh it goes proof of stake, the only way in is to buy in, which seems like over time that's going to centralize a lot of the wealth and limit the democratization of everyone being able to be involved. That's exactly my is, fear, to be honest. Is, is there something that they have kind of planned out? I, don't, I mean, I'm not going to say E3.0, but something out further to where they can address that problem of what happens a decade after the 2.0? Because you can look at the short term and go, well, there's enough Ethereum out there that it's not going to matter. And there's enough people that have enough, it's spread out enough. But over a time, and obviously I think everybody who is talking about a currency, their their plan is not, it's not going to go away in a decade. It's going to be here. Uh-huh. Has there been any statements or how they're going to address that for everyone who's using it, whether that's, you know, just people who are using the currency or the layer two people or any of that? Yeah. So what, what's kind of formed around that right now is a, a kind of a derivative model to where you'll have an entity like an enterprise stake a node, call it whatever X node, and then sell proportionate amounts of that. So then you're, you're buying in at $500 and now you own $500 of a node. Okay. Right. And you're proportionally paid. So it's like a derivative market. Um, a couple, I have all kinds of issues with that, but it's like, but part of it is, is the same thing. Um, part of my issue with that is, is that now you're, now it's like as a service, right? It's a, it's a SaaS at the end of the day, right? It's sitting on a cloud because they're going to want to inherit the most uh, measurable cost structure with regards to hosting, uptime, all that. It, that just we're going to have the three major clouds, you know, GCP, uh, Azure, and uh, Google. You know, yeah, it's Google Cloud, Google Cloud, um, Azure, and AWS pretty much running infrastructure. It just naturally flows there because that's going to be the, long, the lowest cost points. And then you have nodes being hosted by enterprises that have invested the money for the 32. And then they split those off and then sell proportional amounts at, at a dollar, right? I mean, they, they don't care mm-hmm. at the end of the day because they're going to get a fee off of each interaction cost there. So they're going to make their, they're going to continue to make their ETH emissions plus a fee structure that's built on top of it. The the behavior there is for sure. That's where it's going. That's where it's, it's going to go. Everybody, anybody can be an ETH poster. Um, the problem is, is that you get this kind of effect, kind of like I would say cloud mining, 
Right. And I know like Marco Stringe real well from uh, Genesis. I mean, I was, I met uh, Marco back in 2014 when he was launching Hive and in Iceland. And we had these kind of discussions like, you know, here's the risk with this is people want to see the hardware. Uh, at one of the conferences I was at, I also had Jeff, uh, it was Jeff Garza, which ended up going to prison because he was selling the gall miners at the time, which was a like a cloud thing that they said they had this cool little interface. They had spent a lot of money to build this like cool thing, but it wasn't backed by any hardware. It ended up being a Ponzi. And that was part of, I called, we had this open forum and I called Josh out on the forum like, hey, you know, like it's cool and it's a cool story and cool interface and you're seeing your money trickle in. I like the concept, but where's the hardware? I mean, it'd be nice if you had a camera on the blade that I own, mm-hmm. right? Because there needs to be acetation to the, what I actually own. Otherwise, you're going to have all this like fraudulent activity start to occur. And I, I see that same risk with like fractional ETH nodes, right? Where you're going to have interfaces that say they have, you know, 32 ETH locked up. And now you're totally on just them, their trust value. And what's an ETH node, right? It's just a VM that has S stored on a contract, right? So you have this fractional kind of uh, relationship to where <laughs> pretty much who's who, where's the certificate that validates that? I mean, do you will you know the actual F address that you can see your nodes on? Do you see any other transparency to anybody else that owns a fraction and you know you're not being oversold? Uh, I mean, that's part of the risk with that, and that was what was you know <clears throat> presented back. Oh, it's not going to be 32, you're going to own a fractional of it, but that's the natural behavior. So it's not saying that that's all everybody that's going to do that, you know, Riot and a few of the other ones that are uh, already doing this. I think Rocket Pool was one of the first ones. If you look up Rocket Pool, they're, they're already doing this where they're taking money in right now. Uh, and uh, when they, like they have raises to get to uh, 32 ETH, right? So people keep buying in and then they'll start a new node, right? They'll buy ETH at current market price they'll launch a new node and you're like on node 32. But again, it's that same kind of thing. So yeah, fractional ownership, I think is the direction they're going to try to go to get barrier entry. But again, you're going to be doing that at a cost, right? Um, And you're not going to be getting the maximum potential value. And there's still not enough. There's very limited uh, information on actually how beacons going to function with regard once it goes live. Um, because the, it's a deterministic uh, ratio of like how you're going to get a validator, right? So like right now on proof of work, it's completely random. We're all trying, if I was solo mining, there could be a chance I'd never win a block. Why we go to pools because pools have enough size to win blocks and we win a numerator denominator um, share count of that uh, proportional to what the block reward is that that pool earns. With proof of stake, Every epoch, they have a ran, uh, effectively this randomizer that goes out and predicts uh, how many how many uh, nodes are it's going to need to do blocks, and then it just it publishes that list transparently and says you are going to win X, you're going to be block number whatever, and you're going to win that block. And the way like MEV extraction and all that is like the when I saw that that hey they're going to publish the list, it's going to be ahead of time so you know that you're going to win a block. You know what block you're going to win. And now you have this weird opportunity to where I think there's a lot of gaming in that too. And I presented this question back in their Discord. I said, well, wait a minute here. If you print off an entire epoch, let's say it's 1,024 blocks, Mm -hmm. and you know what position you are. You know what block you're about to win. You're like, sweet, I'm picked. My validator's going to get it. Now there's this whole game thing that could happen with 
If somebody needs a transaction at that moment in time, it's going to be the highest bidder, right? So it's going to say, I want yours, your transaction to be included in my block and I'm block X, which is 15 minutes from now. You're going to have this thing, that, like this challenge of saying that you will stuff certain blocks and certain orders and stuff, and people may hold their transactions for some blocks. And I get this, all this gaming that can go on with now predictive uh, or, you know, uh, advantages of when something should get processed and not, right? I mean, because proof of work, it's random. You don't know if you're going to be included until the moment that the mempool is being looked at at that particular block to this forecast of knowing the first, the next winners of the next. So it's like buying votes. It's like the same thing with voting and blockchain and stuff like that. Like if you know who it is, you can spend more for their vote. And, uh, you know, I, they're like, well, the specification's not fully, fully completed yet. It's, that's part of what this is going to happen. And I'm like, wait a minute, how can you switch to this consensus algorithm if that specification is not done yet? Right. And it's not really anything against development. It just shows how much more complex proof of stake is compared to proof of work. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like this gold, you know, machine that has all this complexity and like, that's fine if it starts to move us to a more environmental friendly thing. But if it's at the cost of a lot more complexity in gaming, where we're going to have to just, Oh, we tripped and that cost a lot of people money and Oop, we tripped <laughs> again. And that cost a lot of people a lot of money. It's going to kill people's appetite um, over time. And that, that's part of the risk too. So I, I don't know. I just, I, it's not to rail on proof of stake. I like the, the premise mm -hmm. to reducing any kind of energy foothold. I just don't think there's a better system than proof of work yet. Right. And that there's going to be trade-offs on it. And that's why I was always pushing. And I told people on the channel for five years that I thought Ethereum eventually would get to a place where it's going to be hybrid. It's going to be, you know, every hundredth block is going to be proof of stake. They're going to keep a low emission schedule. And then 99 blocks, or even if they split it half and half, it'd be both. And that's what Dash has done. That's what a few of the other coins have done, where they went into a hybrid system where you have both the proof of work and the proof of stake side. The other thing that jumps out at me uh, when you were talking about the the fractional owning of of a, of a node mm -hmm. a validator is that like there are so many ways that people are going to try to game that because there's so <laughs> many different inflection points on that that you can do. Like it it kind yes. of makes me think of the, some of the Kickstarter scams that have happened in the past, where somebody comes up with a cool idea. They run the Kickstarter just to get a whole lot of money to then start creating something just so they can sell to somebody else and then bail out with their money. Yeah. Like, let's say I had, I don't know, five ETH and you needed 32. I mean, I could create a VM, create a site that I'm going to, you know, you can buy a fractional amount, have people buy in. So then I have enough money to buy the 32 to actually start the thing. Mm -hmm. Even though I only had five, I'm a nobody. I've just taken uh -huh. everybody else's money and created this thing. Like, that's going to be really weird how that plays out. And when there's lots of money to be made, there's going to be lots of people trying every possibility to try Absolutely. to get something out of it. I think fraud rate is going to skyrocket. I don't see any other way that's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, there's it's it, it gives a lot more um, not so linear angles on uh, you know parting people with their money. Uh, and, you know, like it's going to be the person, whoever designs the better linkage. And this is was what I talked to Marco at the time on when it came to cloud mining. I said, if you can design the system to show that you own X amount of hash power and then maybe you're putting, you know, you're taking pictures of the facilities, have people come out to the facilities, understand the capability, be transparent on how many miners you have, be transparent on how much you're releasing to say, you know, we got another 20 terahash or we got whatever amount. 
and then you show, hey, here's the units that are going in, units 15 through 25, and then you're you're keeping the transparent on the, the you know, like the denominator, denominator, like we have only 30 terahash, we only have 20, 10 terahash left, you know, like, and it's, it's you're creating this this snap to, to show that linkage there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's going to be a better, uh, you know, transparent solution. I mean, obviously it can always still be gained, pictures can be gained, whatever, but like being as transparent as possible to the ecosystem um, is going to help that case. And it sets kind of the gold standard because people are going to be like, well, I'm not going to go to that because they're at least showing me this, this, and this. You know, you're going to have a lot better, uh, you know, public attraction to the more the higher transparency and yeah i just don't know how they're going to um i mean i can think of like when i put my like developer hat on i'm like how i would model some kind of system that uh, the the 32e can do a signing like you could take each of those es that's sitting under that private key and you could create this whole signing infrastructure like where you are digitally signing a certificate that says this is this node and these are some other key that's associated to your account. And it's obfuscated to where it's like, here's all the accounts that are assigned to that, right? I mean, like I can think of like how to make that more, you are tied to this address. And then here's your last four digits, your account number on this mm-hmm. node, right? And then like you can see, hey, that's my node. And then you can see associated internal payout structures that are linked to that, right? And you could create this whole backend finance side that, uh, you know, is maybe even on a layer two and you're actually seeing published blocks on layer two under like Matic or something that is showing your payouts and maybe you're paid out in Matic versus being paid out in USD. So then, you know, you're not getting, you know, uh, at least you have a more confidence that you're not getting totally rugged. Mm-hmm. And then just one day it goes away and like all your money's gone and that node never existed and they sold that ETH and you, you know, cause you could put watch addresses on that address, right? right? You could put a watch address on that beacon node and know like, Hey, my node just got dumped, you know, like, did you have transfer me to something, you know, like, uh, because that's ultimately what happens is those people, even if you were tied to there, they could just power the node down or remove the ETH from the node. And like, you don't know, like, um, I don't know. I think that there's opportunity there for somebody to build something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And on the validator front, the other thing that when I was going through and reading on it, that personally for me, just, I saw it and I was just like, oh no, oh no, this is bad. This is bad was the slashing mechanism. Have you looked into that at all? Yeah, so I've been pulling up um, a lot of notes because I want to actually make a video on it and go through this process. Um, the first part, or the main part that right now has me the most concerned is the fact that you're, you're effectively, in proof of stake, you're entering a relationship, a different type of relationship with the network than like proof of work. Like your coin, you have a local daemon that runs on your Linux server, that's your wallet, your private keys associated. Nobody can touch your stuff. I mean, unless they hack in and get your your, your wallet um, and then sweep your key. There's, it's your coins, your private key. When you enter in with a proof of stake, you're entering like essentially it would be effectively a multi-signature relationship with mm-hmm. us network because they need rights to be able to slash your node if they feel you're doing something malicious. So for them to take from you you're in uh, in a in a a hierarchical relationship with F network um, because they would they need rights to be able to dock you if you're offline for too long if you're if you're not um, syncing correctly or on a previous version and it's incompatible if they had a hot fix let's say and you are now 
possibly breaking all kinds of apps because you haven't updated your Infura login or your Infura, you know, uh, JSON, right, on your node. And uh, people randomly connect, you know, it's like a lot of these are gossip networks, right? So like, if you're kind of close to it, you'll get information from a node and that might be incorrect. If you go to like, uh, I'll give you an example from a developer standpoint, uh, ether nodes. I just made a tweet the other day, actually to Tim Binko and a couple of the ETH developers and started this whole thread that got every, all these big developers involved in it indirectly. Cause I said, Hey, uh, what happened to the ETH node count after Berlin? Like half the, half the nodes, it was at 12,000. Now it's at 4,000. Three of the other ether uh, ether scans not reporting right. None of these these large, you know, blockchain header uh, readers essentially that that take the header information and like give us nice displays and dashboards are working when it comes to the ETH node count. Like I can't tell how many nodes there are. I'm like, this is fundamental. Like this is a problem. Like and they're like, oh yeah, it's you know since Berlin they like all these things needed to update their. They're, uh, the way they read that, this is uh, it's double reporting. It's doing all that. I'm like, guys, this is a three hundred billion dollar network. Like, like this is the header reader that shows me how many nodes there are, right? Uh, so like, you guys gotta get this fixed. Like, like that seems to be really critical. Um, and what happens is, is like the larger institutions and stuff effectively write their own versions of it because they don't trust any third party, right? So they'll 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 read the the base code. They'll write their own. Uh, you know, uh, a node as it were to extrapolate the information from it. So they're not relying on EtherScan. They're not, they don't want to pay the API fees to CoinGecko, right? Or anything like that. So they'll write their own stuff. So that's why the enterprise class of it's not really raising the bar. It's, it's more just the open, you know, communities out there like me, just, uh, I'm not going to write my own thing on it. I don't have any reason to right yet, but like, you know, we're the ones that, that get that bad information, but you know, like, there's that kind of that kind of activity that just you know sometimes mm-hmm. you know concerns me on it. Yeah, because I understand the the need for having something that you can do to counteract bad actors. Because obviously the, the network is mm-hmm. only going to function properly if if there's a consensus, and if you have people that Correct. are intentionally throwing out bad data to throw off the consensus for some malicious reason, well, that's bad, and you've got to stop that. What caused me just the the, the shock was that it's an automated thing. And it's like, mm-hmm. you're now talking about automating something that results in actual monetary damage to someone. Like, that is very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Like, first, there's the, well, there's yeah, the just the yeah, accidental. Yeah. If somebody is working on their node and they get something wrong, I think there was a, something that happened, I think it was earlier this year on the test net where mm-hmm. somebody got some stuff wrong and, oops, their node yeah. started sending bad. So then the system was just like, okay, no, you're, you're gone. And they're like, oh, yeah. oops, we screwed that up. So... Like, that's bad right there, because I know as a developer, things go sideways for completely unknown reasons. I'm like, I change one thing over here, something completely unrelated, that there's no reason it should should have a problem, has a problem. So did they lose their whole stake in that incident, or was it just like a big fine? Um, No, I think that when they lost everything they were were staking. Oh my gosh, that's a little bit severe. Not a test chain, but still, that's a bit severe of a penalty. I think they put protections in there to where there'd be no instance where you'd ever try to lose your whole stake but yeah. it does like it does have levels of extreme um mm-hmm. and it, it ticks over time but like yeah i mean it's it, again it's not it's not the things that are designed to do what they're doing it's more the things that were not right you know that exploit the fact that that's a that's an entryway to reduce and now you can exploit that in some way you know like what what you know, Bitcoin's uh, elusive 2010, like, uh, minting bug, you know, that was ultimately mm-hmm. caught 
by Satoshi um, and folks where you had the ability to, you know, produce two transactions with, uh, you know, different headers, and then you could manipulate um, within that uh, effectively a buffer underrun, overrun where it just goes over where it's supposed to. Now it's in this like realm and memory to where you can now exploit and make a change to things and the node doesn't know how to handle it. So it just accepts it. And now if somebody can use, you know, buffer underrun or an overrun on that and go, I want to take, I want to withdraw all this ETH on this, on the fact that I can reduce it because of this function. Mm-hmm. And now you get depleted and they do that to 20 nodes that didn't update their thing to something. Right. So, you know, part of it's the risk of having, even having the access to it is part of the risk. And I mean, I said that today and on my live stream, I was like, like, this is the one part that, that I don't like is that I can get slashed. I understand that when they were looking at the structures of it, like they had to have this poison pill to not be doing bad behavior. Um, but from a consensus standpoint, it, it's a risk. And, you know, I just, the ETH's the only one doing that, um, you know, from a slashing standpoint. And, you know, it's a, it's a complex machine. And maybe it ends up working. It works as intended. It's just, it's just one of those points of contention, you know, I think from, from you know, you're never going to get a Bitcoin maximalist to move over to it because they're just like, you're nuts. There's no way I'm giving you access to my coins in that way. But, um, you know, it, you know, it's just maybe that fractional ownership is a better deal because if you have a, you have a, you have some kind of protection. I, I mean, I could see like insurance, right? Like, like you can have yeah. all this layering structure on this to say, you know, if you got rugged, you're covered, you know, and there's going to be now insurances that you pay into. And like, I just. A lot of opportunity for secondary or tertiary income on top of what's already happening. But there's, I, I think though, that's, I'm not opposed to that because that, that allows people to bring in some ingenuity into the system. Um, as long as it's not ingenuity for fraud, like insurance, uh, we could have an argument whether that's fraud or not, depending on the situation. But there are definite causes for insurance. You know, it's like yeah. we all hate it, and then like we had a, a real big like hell event here, uh, where like my camper, a whole bunch of like roofs were all destroyed in like our whole area, and it was like I hate you hate taking care of insurance that day. But man, when we, all those roofs got replaced, uh, everything out there it was like the best thing ever. Right. Um, and so it is, it is that it's, it, it's the normal social dilemma thing. Like we, we pay into social mm-hmm. systems of some sort and then, you know, you can have whatever opinion on it until you need it. Right. And so it's like, if something like the pandemic happened and then, you know, people now are relying on certain government things because like their job shut down. That's nice to have an opportunity to have some of that. We can argue all day on both sides of that political if it was good or bad or whatever. But in that moment in time, if it's there, it's nice to have um, the same thing with that kind of thing with insurances or some kind of guarantee, uh, you know, on that. And I mean, the, the FDIC and everybody's dealing with that right now on like if we get EFTs and stuff like that approved or where investors put money in, are they going to have these other consumer protections? Well, what has to be in place in that? How's the custodial services work? I mean, that's all the stuff that's getting rolled through right now. Um, you know, from a structure standpoint, which will just allow more money into the system because people yeah. have more confidence that, hey, you know what, I'll, I'll diversify mm-hmm. into this now because there's some other extra production. Yeah, so for me, the confidence is is kind of the big thing because, you know, when I decide to, okay, I want to invest in, in a current a cryptocurrency or whatever, obviously, I don't want my money to disappear the next day. That's kind of, it's kind of a key mm-hmm. point. Right. And the thing yeah. that it touches on what we talked about earlier with the slashing thing is, when you have a mechanism where value can be monetary value can actually be destroyed, that becomes an interesting vector for people outside external threats, because 
you know, like we said before, if there's people from a different chain, like if, if there's another currency, Cardano, let's say, um, you know, somebody who has is really, really invested in Cardano, they could be sitting there thinking, well, hold on, if I can drop the trust in Ethereum, people are going to look for an alternative. So if they come to Cardano, then I'll be able to make more money. So then you have an external person who is incentivized to try to cause something bad happening on the Ethereum mm -hmm. side. So something happens and then people go, oh, hold on, I don't, I don't like this. Maybe I need to reconsider. So like, mm -hmm. there's not just the game theoretic within the Ethereum ecosystem and currency. There's also the game theoretic of all the other currencies that are working alongside and competing against. And you know, you have to worry about what things externality threats might exist too. Yeah, I mean, I would go in, uh, that was part of the initial uh, model write-up, is I went in with a concept that the incentive is there because it's happened before. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't just another, co you know, coin uh, proponent looking at an opportunity attack vector on it more, or just a, you know, uh, you know, a black hack hacker that's going to just like, I'm going to take money from this state ran hacker if it's you know uh something uh, you know out of you know north korea or somebody that's being pushed uh to uh you know uh, try to get some other value extraction because they have so many you know negative things on their country and they can't get money and they're just driven to do this um all of these different circumstances that that promote their rationale to try to value extract out of it or cause you know uh ill confidence in it you know, that's already there. It's, it's there because we've seen it on these other networks, right, wrong, or indifferent. ATC was hacked three mm -hmm. times, right? Um, and they weren't, and they got value extraction out of that, right? They were double spending. Um, you've had Verge uh, had that, you know, the same thing. You had, uh, R RVN, I think, got their stuff captured in, in a central exchange because they pivoted quick enough, you know, to say, hey, go, they went straight to the exchange. And I think Tron sent a message to the exchange, I think it was Binance, and saying, hey, bring your confirmations up like we're we're under attack and you're going to get you're going to get double spent um so the reaction time real quick is real important but bottom line those events occurred and it didn't totally take out the coin but it de definitely did have an impact on you know some of that that reliability on something like eth i look at it like it's a whole different class of citizen in the ecosystem that if eth got hit hard like that it it's fun foundational on the whole ecosystem right because they're like oh this is a 300 billion dollar mm -hmm. coin huge amount of investors and stuff i mean there could be complete exits on um large amounts of coin at that point in time i think uh these other coins are proverbial dark horses for huge wells uh they take positions in every you know the top 20 and just look at it like this is long-term play you know 17 of them are going to fell three of them are going to pop uh and then it'll be good investments for me um but like something like Ethereum and, and Bitcoin, are, I think, are foundation, uh, you know, and you can't just insert value in any of these. I mean, we've seen that with that ICP that came out, that Coinbase dropped with the Internet Computer Definity, right? It came out at like $500 and it's just tanked since then because you can't just you can't just immediately promote that people are going to just jump into value. Uh, you know, it, it's these things are earned over time or the trust is earned over time and it can be taken away pretty quick on an attack. So to, to pivot a little um with with looking at cryptocurrencies in general um I, I love the openness i love the decentralization i love the democratization 
but they are obviously extraordinarily complex things. And I mean, mm -hmm. just finance in general with money is complex, but people always kind of have a general understanding of it, even if they actually really don't know all, everything that goes on behind the scene with banks and all that stuff. They kind of have a general idea and understanding of how, how regular currency works. But with cryptocurrencies, it's a lot of confusion because they're like, well, it's, it's this high tech thing and there's some people that do some things and that makes some new things and they don't, they don't get it which it leads to people then having the response of, okay, well, it's, it's, it's fake currency. It's a scam. There's no way it's worth that. When do you think that that tide is going to turn of the public perception where people are going to start to generally go, okay, there actually is something here. That's not just geeks doing something and saying that it's super cool. Uh, I mean, I think that's, that's starting to partially occur now. I think part of the risk, it's kind of like the whole like on in developments like the black box theory, like I don't care what happens in the black box. I just need this and this, I need this input and this output. And what happens in the middle is fine. Um, and we do that already with a lot of software, right? We, we they, they trust the developer implicitly um, to give us the final results. And then sometimes, you know, the middle part gets you in trouble because, you know, maybe you order sorted something wrong or your algorithm's wrong and you're having the wrong output. But the, you know, with this directly having ties to money, like the input, turns into the output of cash. And if that goes down, you're like, what the hell, you know, right? So um, the, the integration with common services to where it, it has a net um, effect at lowering the base cost of things, I think people will start to understand the innovation. And what I mean by that is by definition, by design, if you start to transfer a lot of those things that are happening in current FinTech, over to the realms of cryptocurrency and you start looking at data center costs, you start looking at the amount of people that it takes to run that machine, transferring into maybe different roles and you have this natural you know, deflation of, of those services because now everything's running on the network. I mean, it's, uh, there's, there's this term in business that they call white powder. Don't, I mean, it is what it is, <laughs> but that, that when you have like your cost and your overhead and you have all this extra now because you don't have to pay for like the data centers and stuff because you've taken those efforts onto onto chain you you promote that value down to the the user and customer um to where maybe it's a reduced service and now you have natural competition because people are just going to race to the bottom on on you know they'll they'll, they'll take a margin hit but then they're going to be able to offer their same services and they're just going to outdo everything i mean you look at taxis and uber like just shutting down like some of the taxis in New York cost $25, $30. Uber's now caught up, but like there was a point in time where, uh, because they're, they're just making, they're trying to make more revenue with it. Um, there's going to be a cost advantage to doing things in crypto. That's going to move the needle and move these companies over to it, which then will cause hopefully a price uh, reduction on certain goods and services mm -hmm. to you. Cause you don't have to have all that overhead. I think that's when it starts to turn into when it's when it's reliable enough to facilitate some of those uh, transactions, and you have companies competing with other companies with a quarter of the the assets, and can offer so much better pricing, you'll start to see it on a consumer standpoint to say, "Well, I'm just going to pay that in Matic," you know, like like, and then you have the app side of it set up to where it's auto doing this transition of market spot price. So it's the black box concept where. I'm paying for this thing, maybe denominating U.S. dollars. Maybe in the future, it's, it's mm -hmm. Satoshi's, right? But it's 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 lower cost net effect. I feel like I don't have to pay as much. Better competition 
because the overhead's not as much. That's where we really start to see, you know, an advantage of that. I mean, there is something to be said for speed and transaction um, to people like locally, right? Like, I mean, I, I always make fun of like, I trade a lot uh, to friends and stuff and Litecoin and Doge forever. And people are like, why the hell are you using Doge? I'm like, I don't know, because it's instant and it always works. And like, I can send a lot to people and like people like getting, you know, Doge and like uh, the barrier to entry is almost instant. They download a phone app, they have value transferred to them, no KYC, right, right straight, and we get straight to the point. Um, the financial infrastructures for reporting and all that stuff, I believe at the time we'll switch over to like the layer two will be where all your, where all your KYC is going to end up being at. They'll, they'll get off of this concept of trying to uh, KYC layer one. Um, because all the volume of transaction, all the app development, all the transaction speed, all that stuff is going to go to layer two. Nothing out there is going to stay on. I mean, layer one is going to be there. It's the foundation. It's the base layer. You're going to have large transactions and a store proof of story or proof of reserves on layer one. Layer two is federated, more centralized. However, still again, running essentially a smart contract on layer one. And it's the, still that same overhead play. You don't need big, huge data centers, you know, so you can draw down your cost, all your app development will be on layer two um, and all your KYC and all that kind of stuff will be integrated with that. Right. So now you're just controlling it at choke points on layer two. Don't get so much into involved into trying to, uh, you know, from the government sides, they'll get out of trying to, you know, these open wallets and Monero and all that stuff on layer one. They'll just it, it's it, it's an unwinnable. It's like a war on drugs, 1980 kind of battle. Right. It's like. <laughs> It's like you're trying to tap every phone line. Like, just don't even waste your time. Like, you're going to get it at the airport. You're going to get it through the dog sniffing. You're going to get it. There's there's choke points to where you're going to be able to uh, build that infrastructure on. Um, And when we start to see every major company making layer two app derivatives of whatever their main centralization side is, like they'll have a complementary layer two app. And then that ends up being a cheaper alternative. Then I think you'll start to see like, uh, who cares that it runs on Matic? You're just going to know that, hey, this is running on chain and I'm going to have this whole new level of telemetry um, and it's a lot less overhead. I don't have to spend as much money. And I think a lot of startups are going to shake the boots of some of these larger, you know, CRMs and, you know, sales forces of the world and oracles of the world and all that kind of stuff. You're going to start to see a lot of that go on that, um, that layering. Well, I certainly hope so. And I also hope that... Uh... I know there's this un- kind of ongoing war between cryptocurrency advocates and, and developers and like the IRS, who th- on this year's taxes insisted that you report any Bitcoin, tr- not just uh, cryptocurrency transactions, that you had to be honest in your reporting this. And of course, what's your incentive to be honest? Because there's a degree of anonymity. Mm-hmm. But I just think about the classic banking system. It takes upwards of two to three weeks to cash a check. So there's a large amount of trust built into the system that I give it to my bank and they're going to credit the money in my account within two days, two days in an eternity when you're talking about a cryptocurrency transaction. Yeah. I think as, as this becomes more popular, people are going to be captivated by just like you were talking about earlier, how fast can I pay someone? It's done. We, we don't have to worry about it anymore. And there's been a lot of these fintech services in the middle to try and make it like, like Venmo. So you're you're paying into this pool, and now you can move your Venmo around, and it becomes ca- cash again. They're just they're doing effectively what cryptocurrencies are doing, but they're keeping it all internal. Yeah, but the big thing about Venmo, and I've, I've had this conversation with uh, you know folks on it. Um, so Venmo is good for point to point cash. So is you know Facebook Pay or all these different Apple Pay point to point cash movement. 
But the difference between cryptocurrency and that, especially like Celsius and like BlockFi being a centralized one, is the lending side of it. So if Venmo wanted to do lending on money that you had in, in Venmo, Venmo falls under, you know, Bank of Delaware is who they do business with. You have to go through traditional KYC banking approvals to borrow against your money that would be in Venmo if they offered lending services. Because it's in USD, it's in a bank. And if you're lending from a bank, even if it's a fully collateralized loan, you have to go through all that effort on the bank side. Or I could go to, you know, BlockFi, I could go to Coinbase now. And if I have coins in Coinbase, like if you go into your Coinbase app on your phone, you can now scroll down if you have money in there and say, lend me money against this. Next, next, finish. The terms are in there. And then your account is updated with cash, USD, like literally if not the same if it's the same day on some banks depending like my bank allows it like as long as it's in by 10 a.m by 2 p.m the money's in there right from coinbase i have we have like the same um same day service from coinbase that coinbase does like an ach straight to them so like the fact that you could have a fully collateralized borrowed money against your assets in the same day changes everything from the speed of banking currently Right. So if you're trying to refinance something now, the big difference is it's collateralized and then it's collateralized because of the amount. The future of that is going to be a portionally collateralized because you're going to have like this social maybe fabric that they're, they have a metric on you on. And then you'll have part crypto and then you could only need to collateralize at 50 percent or something. And you could borrow a certain amount against that. You don't need to be 100 percent collateralized, as it were. Right now, it's 100 percent because then because of the volatility if it drops below a certain point, they're just going to sell your crypto and they're going to be out and have all their money back. Right. So the, the, the FinTech innovation and, and, and finance, and that's CFI, right. That's centralized finance with Coinbase or, or this, or if you go DeFi, which is more like Celsius or, you know, any of the, uh, you know, uh, Ava and, um, like maker and uh, all those like where you can borrow against your money and get it in. And those ones, you'll get it just token, right? You'll get wrapped Ethereum or you get tether or, you know, whatever stable coin you come into. And then you got to take that to a CFI to get your us dollars or whatever. If you try to pay something, um, the transition to that, um, move into either a digital dollar, which I'm super interested in seeing if they're end up going to move to that. Um, you know, the U.S. government will move to that just because it'll be just integrated into those apps, uh, kind of like what El Salvador is going to try to do, where they're going to take a position in a trust, create, you know, if it's going to be through, I think Strike is using Tether, which, I mean, I'm neutral. I mean, I'm, I'm not neutral, and I actually think it's actually not good. They need to move to something that's not Tether. Yes. Like Strike needs to choose something in the Lightning Network that's not Tether, because we know Tether's not fully collateralized. <laughs> Tether is a portion. <laughs> Like it's a known known. So that means if people are borrowing or setting in Tether and El Salvador, they're actually not fully collateralized. Um, so they should probably get into like USDC and or something to that effect that's that's at least fully collateralized. I think this is like we're in this kind of intra point that where it's gonna move to a fully collateralized. If one of the big treasuries do it, if it's the US Treasury, um, you know, it's really gonna be Europe or us that's gonna do it, one of the big ones that have to do it, and then it changes everything. Cause then People will feel a lot more confident to be in whatever the USD um, true one is because you know it's at least backed by uh, the government, the, the biggest government. Even though we're printing a sh whatever amount of money, people still go to stable coins that are still based on a dollar. So it's irrelevant. Like if people are like, oh, it's, I don't want to go to the government coin that's at a dollar, it's going to reduce more. I'm like, wait a minute, wait. When you go to the tether, you're in the same concept. When you go to USDC, even if USDC was fully collateralized, 
you're still tied to the dollar, which has all the all the other you know deflationary issue or the inflation issues that are there. But um, that's a key part of it is that it's going to be um, you know to where we have the option um, to quickly use all these these cool financial things that you would normally need to uh, that that takes so much time in the traditional banking world. And you know the like my current my local bank here. Um, it is a low. I have a local bank that that I deal with. I've talked to you know the bank president, all those folks, to make sure that they they understand with what crypto is. You know they've looked in the OCC, which is you know Office of the Comptroller of Currency, when the, that guidance came out of how they could become custodial. You know so they're very forward leaning on trying to understand the the dynamics of being able to maybe potentially be a, their own custodial, hold their own reserves in crypto. Um, we're nine months to probably two years max. I think it happens in I think it happens in this Biden administration. I'm not saying it's Biden or getting political either way. I think it would eventually, even if Trump went into this next four years, I think it's it's beyond a, a president. It's it's the ecosystem of the world moving to something that's new and innovation, and it just happens to be on the administrative table for the current you know administration. And one of the key tasks for them accelerated for all the nefarious reasons on some of it with 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 like the colonial pipeline thing and you, they're having to address this but it's not just you know a hammer and a nail it's more the the whole house you know they're like you have some malicious stuff here but there's a lot of other uh things that need to be answered on it well, that belief in the fiat currency that's i mean i think like you alluded to earlier when that tie is made formally officially there's only like five or six real stable currencies in in the world today. A lot of them are just fiat and have their value at that point. But when you have the stable currency tied to a stable coin or stable coins at one point, I don't see how the average person would still be afraid of it at that point. When you've made an official attachment at that high level, though, I also I don't I don't have the clarity that you do into all these things. I'm real impressed to hear about the how the future is going to happen, and I, I fully believe it. I, I don't know about the timeline because I haven't researched enough. But there's been so much resistance thus far to cryptocurrency. It's it's going to take some kind of sea change or, or changing of the guard for people that are hostile to cryptocurrency up at that level to people that realize this is going to happen whether we like it or not. If we don't get in now, we're going to lose control over currency in general. Someone's going to have that realization and jump in. Well, yeah, I mean, there, so there's there's a, like a large ethical debate on like with with governments and losing. I mean. Uh, this goes all the way back to the turn of time of, of creation of currency and who owns currency and who can who can create um, debt and who can back said debt and there's a huge like uh, economic you know you know entire ideology around like well they're never going to let it go full tilt because of X but I think it comes down to uh, when you have a fundamental paradigm shift of capability it gets people listening and hearing. And then when you look at the existential things of like, okay, do we lose control of the monetary system or not? I don't think it, I think you can have something that grow, greatly appreciates something like Bitcoin that has known supply limit, has all the dynamics to, to support it and becomes the better long-term store of reserve. But the government issuing out a stable coin tied to the dollar if you have this other thing that's going up, that's fine. It's going to just going to keep going up and you're just going to get more of those digital dollars. I think from a functionality standpoint, because you have something that's variable and going up, they're never, you don't want to spend that. I've made that mistake for 10 years. Uh, the 10 year experience, I will tell you, 
I've spent more Bitcoin than I should have. I have a GPUs like that were, I, I bought a six card GPU set up from Newegg. The day Newegg started accepting Bitcoin, it was $317, I think it was Bitcoin price. Oh, and wow. I bought GPUs that was the R9 390X2s. It was the, the, the power color dual GPUs. I bought six of them. They were 900 bucks a piece at $300 Bitcoin price. I bought six of them. Gosh. You do the math on that. That's one rig. That it hurts. Cost 18 Bitcoin, right? It was the most oh. expensive graphics card setup ever. So it, what it comes down to is I think the, like the proof of reserve thing can still happen. Like Bitcoin can continually to expand into, you know, $25 trillion, but you're still going to have your day-to-day -day interaction that you need to establish price basis on goods and services, which is going to have to be denominated in something. And then as long as you have a curved, I mean, who knows with all the printing of the money, what inflation should be. I know what it should be at. We should be at like seven to 9% or at like right. inflation uh, because of how much is printed. But like, if they keep it, all they're doing is is more people are going to have more money. We already see what the effects of this are. People are like, oh, we don't have that much inflation, but like everything's really expensive right. because there's a run on because you have a lot more money available. So we're seeing the net effect of it, regardless of what anybody wants to say. We're all feeling it, like everybody in the entire world. If you're trying to buy anything right now, you can't because there's, th there's that much more money available on hand and people are just buying up stuff. Um, but it's still going to be dollars. It just happens to be more dollars. And then if you have your diversification into this thing that's appreciating heavily, then it's just that's your proof for reserve. So I, I don't think it upsets the I, I think what they were thinking that it would disenfranchise like a big government. I think it's still whoever has the biggest gun is going to win type of thing. On that. Yeah, I think it's just more of they can optimize the features and functionality of, of banking, lending, um, der risk, derivatives, all these other uh, things that. Uh, that people can do and move into a world of transparency and history versus just take my word for it. And it's company and centralized, right? So it's, you're going to have this proof of reserve concept. You're going to have a, you're going to have a transaction history concept um, that can still obfuscate, you know, telemetry. And we're just going to get, it's like the dark force thing with Ethereum. If you think about that, like anybody can go out there and manipulate the, uh, this order sort, take advantage of each other, whatever, and then it's posted. If you had that same thing with, with financial telemetry on, on like all companies and stuff, you're going to get just, you're going to get a lot of dog eat dog world, but you're going to have this new thing that's going to manifest that might be highly efficient. Um, because now you're going to have only the, the strongest surviving and giving you the best. If, as long as you have like a stable coin to still transact in, and you, if it drives goods and services costs down for you, um, that's, that's what I think is a, a better world. It just changes the way it is versus a controlled centralized way of doing it to a decentralized auto autonomous moving, you know, um, you know, balancing act. It's just, it's just something different and new. I know that, uh, MIT media lab has been working with, I don't know if it's the department of commerce or some, but another government agency, I know they've been working on, you know, kind of a pilot program of coming trying ideas, seeing what they think would work best. Um, there was an interview I saw mm -hmm. like half of like two weeks ago. And of course, then I couldn't find the tab ever again. And I need to try to track it down. <laughs> but yeah. it was really interesting. And they made and the woman from whatever government agency it was, it was like, you know, this is the future. We're going to have to go there. There's no question. The question is, who do we want leading the way? We can yield that ground yeah. to other nations and perhaps negatively to a country like China, 
or we can take that front running mm-hmm. role and help lead the way in that kind of future digital world. The one thing that I kind of mm-hmm. always never know exactly the best way to um, to get people over the the doubt hump is the actual like consumer level on the street. How are things going to work? Because people, there's plenty of stories, and I mean, I'm one of them. Who I had a bunch of Bitcoin, and then my car got broken into, and my netbook got stolen back in 2014. So I've lost that. Well, I didn't have that wallet backed up because I was a dumb dumb. Well, actually, it was on my phone, which mm-hmm. also got stolen. So I didn't have a real backup. Um, <laughs> so you know, the regret now. But that's the problem that I know a lot of people have is they're like, well, okay, so if I get a, wa- a wallet on my phone and I'm using it, and my phone breaks or I lose my phone, well, I've lost my money. Whereas like. Currently, with a bank account, I interface it through my phone or through a debit card or through a credit card that doesn't auto withdraw. But my money actually isn't on my phone. It's it's somewhere else so that I can get to it from multiple points. And obviously, the whole point of decentralization mm-hmm. is we don't want to just have crypto banks that hold everybody's coins that we then get. We want to hold mm-hmm. them. But is there are there things in that work now or that are in development to kind of ease that consumer side so there's not the worry of I make a bad choice one day, I've just lost X amount of thousands or X amount of millions of dollars because I lost my phone or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And it's part of one of the biggest barrier entries right now uh, in the space. But I mean, what's really came around like with like, like I'll use Exodus wallet as an example. You can pair Exodus with, with multiple devices. It, it translates your private key into 12 words. You know, it, it pushes very heavily. Like if it sees any money coming in there, it like the first screen comes up is saying, hey, you need to back this up um, where it wants you to co-locate those 12 words into something. Um, you know, if it's writing it down, if it's, you know, typing it out and then printing it and then deleting that local copy because you otherwise somebody gets access to those keys. It's, it's first, I think it comes down to base the, the base education for everybody to understand, along with some kind of augmentation of being able to co-locate keys in such a way that that is also secure and is very unlikely to get exploited like that the wallet getting hacked or your computer getting hacked uh type of thing to where you know 12 words was a big step um what i like to tell people is like your coins are always on the chain it's just you have the key to it or not right it's like you know but you can always restore the your 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 wallet so like on that Exodus kind of front standpoint but i think it's going to be this thing the yes we should have it to have this cryptographic proof that you own something, it's your wallet, you have control and nobody can take it, is a very empowering thing. At the end of the day, the physical manifestation of that is this kind of the same thing as that over time, if you've gotten cash and you just keep it under your, your bed, like and nobody knows about it, but says you, you have this like physical representation of money. It just doesn't keep going up. It's just, it's relative flat sense. Um, you know, crypto is effectively digital cash by that regard. And you can, hold on to it forever, not let anybody else know you have it. Uh, you know, and if it's over $10,000 and you go to deposit in your bank, the IRS will come out and go, where did this come from? <laughs> um, but like, I think it's a mix of both. I think bottom line is the, you're going to have like your effective use uh, coins. The interfaces there are going to be kind of quote unquote hot wallets. And you're going to have some either kind of biometrically driven or another uh, key pairing that's going to allow um, like I've seen uh, solutions where they've taken two different, like, like uh, myself and like my wife, those two biometrics come together to make a, a, a multi-key. And so either one of us can open that, or if we both do it, we get access to all the funds, that type of thing. I, I think there's going to be innovation to separate it to more than just you trying to remember a phrase. 
um, that as we get into more sophisticated, um, you know, uh, biometric capture, visual capture of things, um, proof of locate. I, I've seen a pretty interesting one on proof of location. So one way to unlock it was to take the device and go to four geographic locations within a certain amount of time. And then that would open up the key. And it was like only you knew where those locations were. It was a very innovative way of like, like that. Like if I knew geographically go here, go here, go here because of how accurate the uh, GPSs are now that creates the key pair that then unlocks the wallet. Right. And so you don't have to remember any kind of, uh, uh, address or anything. You don't have to remember any kind of word, but you can remember where you went like four times. Right. And like, like that kind of innovation, I think really comes to, uh, this new kind of unlocking mechanism. You can tell people those four locations or something. And, and that gives you opportunities, that new wallet unlock, um, and restoration as it were, you know, which, uh, it's just, you know, I think that innovation comes with it. Um, for like your personally held stuff, but I think there's going to be this kind of, uh, you know, part custodial part because you're going to want it hot walleted. You're going to want an interaction on your browser. It's like just key paired to several things because a lot of the interaction is going to be online buying and all that kind of stuff. So you're going to want it hot um, to be able to interact with it. Um, but that paired with some kind of bio, my biometric thing, I think is ultimately effectively two factor. Okay. I've long had a advocacy for, I want to change the model of how we, uh, receive content online. And we've talked about this on the podcast earlier. I would like to be able to pay, if we're talking dollars, pay 25 cents or 35 cents to read an article. Uh, I know some companies have tried it and they haven't found it much. The, the microtransaction things hasn't really worked for them. Hey, well, yeah. And then a lot of it is uh, partially the problem they have is that the, the credit card companies don't ever want to let microtransactions happen. The, the fees eat people alive. So the obvious conclusion there is, well, we can go and do you know, layer two microtransactions on Ethereum or something, and then it becomes much more effective. How likely is it that, let me ask this, are there services already trying that? Are we evolved enough to be able to start trying that? Or is that still some distance off, do you think? Well, I think on a layer, uh, well, it's still layer one bat. So basic attention token has tried that with like Brave Browser with paying for attention and paying for content through Brave Token as part of the Brave Browser, having an integrated wallet. Um, I think it's, the the reality is is when we can get to the interface side to where you click on something and then you just accept that terms with a microtransaction and you choose that the problem it, it's the same dilemma as like the subscription dilemma right now where i mean i know for me i i had to go through and reconcile stuff because i was paying for like hbo twice and like because i logged in and actually paid for it once and then left it go and forgot about it and i was like oh my god you know it's like you have this overhead of managing subscriptions um versus uh paying for uh a uh you know every little thing i mean i think uh, you'll feel you'll have this natural resistant i think if everything costs like microtransactions because you're just like, I'm getting, I don't know what this sums up to. And I know I'm going to, I know I'm going to get a alive on this if over time. So it is, yes, a, I, I think it's uh, bundled. I think we're going to go back to a bundled transaction set, to be honest with you. I mean, there was a lot of research. Um, and I had a friend that works for a, a uh, cable company and the amount of R and D they did to try to find out subscription bundles to figure out what people felt comfortable with buying. Cause like, you know, 500 channels, one cost, right. You know, I think there's going to be classifications of services rendered 
that then could get microtransactioned out of that. It's better to think of it like a like a service, like a service call on a uh, on a on a um, you know on like a web page. Like if we're writing a, we're writing a really dense site for like uh, like some kind of dashboarding. I'm going to try to make one call and have all my services in that one to try to lean it out a little. It seems monolithic, um, but you can have it as microservices in there because I can modularize it. But that one call is that one thing. I can see in a world where on Rails, we'll have all those microtransactions, but they're going to be bundled. And they're going to be bundled in class, like a class set. And so like if you if you go to traditional internet, it's fine. Or then you'll have like um a, a premium news services or something and right and then those will all be bundled together so everybody's equal per, equal opportunity new york times wall street journal all those kind of things will be like a class right and then they'll all extract value based on somebody just saying i'm buying all these right it's a much better play it's just hard to get all the traditionally it's harder to get them all on the same board but it's you're doing it the other way around you're saying i'm going to build a class of services and if you want to be included in that service, then on your front end, say you can enter my site if you if if uh, as long as you meet this criteria, right? So it changes it around to where now I'm just saying like a service registry. We 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 uh, societally wise come into a, a classification where we want to pay for things, and then those become standards, and then those standards are now put on the website on the flip side of it of saying, hey, I I'll do that standard. So then. You're able to draw from that um, that budget, as it were, based on somebody going there. So if I'm paying for a class of news services, I could go everywhere. It doesn't matter. Like I go to Wall Street Journal, I'm not paywalled on anything. And because I'm clicking on it, it's like the reverse ad side that now advertisement companies pay for like influencers, right? On clicks, right? We're just doing it the other way, paying those companies back by us interacting with them because we paid some fee to the bucket and it's all on chain in a smart contract. And that smart contract based on that bucket is paying them. I think it's a much more cleaner interface. Um, by the way, nobody's designed that. This was something I was coming up with. So I just gave you guys and your audience. So any developers listening, I just gave you a billion dollar idea. <laughs> we can also cut this out, you know, if, if you want. Yeah, no, 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 you're fine. No, I'm, I, dude, I give so much away on this stuff. Like, I like I I have a, a different project I'm working on um, internally to try to to try to build out something that I think would be interesting. But like, there's so many that I think coming from that mindset of like my day to day being a, a solution architect, like, and uh, you know, it's just I'm looking at larger, I'm looking at the whole tech stack, Web three, you know, uh, Web three API. Like, I'm I'm trying to figure out the the more you know, overall arching interface that makes most sense and that everybody can contribute to their portion of that. And then it becomes like the standard on it. And that, that class side that I was looking at is just a much more cleaner uh, assertion of it because it works a lot like advertising. It works on engagement and use. Um, and it, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what the click, what the click price and purchase we, uh, because it's going to be a new revenue stream for them. So like if you go in there and it's like $7 to access all news sites, maybe it's only one or two news sites initially, but those one or two news sites are going to be getting paid a lot. And everybody's like, well, shit, I want part of that, but it needs to be open source, right? So the way you, you do it is to say, we're going to build this interface. You pay $7, you'll have access to this whole class of things. 
circumstantially only two guys have signed up for it, but it's all automated. So then they'll come out there, they'll sign this global service registry that they're a new site and it doesn't, it's fully open source. So it doesn't even matter. Let's say anybody can call that service and, and get money, but they have to have unique clicks coming in. So the, the unique click part is the thing. So then if you're just nobody and you're like, well, I'm going to make that, I'm going to make a website and I'm going to call that service too every time and try to get money. It all comes down to views. It doesn't matter that you've done that in an open source environment. If people start showing up to your website, you're going to start making money. Like who cares? But Wall Street Journal is going to make a crap ton of money because people click on their site a lot, right? So then it's just about filling the bucket and calling the service like as part of like when people are coming in, they're coming in on that service. And your browser is the entry and exit gateway. Like that's, that's giving you the, the certificate or the single sign-on or the ECA to get you into uh, co-signing that transaction out of the bucket. So if you've been a contributor you're co-signed into that that bucket and with you you carry the other signature that you need to sign for the website when you hit that website it's going to say i bless you essentially and <laughs> now they can go fetch their money out of the account because you are a signer of it automatically by just hitting the site like i've, I've looked into like how that would function i'm like this is the way to do it like this just it's it's seamless it's um it's organic the only thing for me is just my contribution into the whole, which then would keep it connected to my like MetaMask if it was on Ethereum. So it knows that I did it. It knows my address and it knows where I go because I went in there. Um, it doesn't know me as, as Mike. It knows me as whatever address, right? So then the KYC side of it's irrelevant because then I know I don't have to sign into your damn site with like Facebook, right? Okay. Like I'm not transferring some inner relationship of other information grabbing. It's literally just, I want to use, uh, you know, New York Times to read something and uh, you circumstantially get paid because now I clicked on you. Um, it's just a fundamentally better design, I think, just being in this space for as long as I have. And it's turning crypto into a real utility because it's all about my clicks now and my contribution of adding some money into it. Um, but yeah, I mean, and that that could technically work the same way with like just MetaMask and not having to have this whole bucket and this smart contract. You could have it to where it just automatically comes out of your MetaMask and you're paying a microtransaction automatically. Oh, my only problem with that is, is that um, I think it could be exploited versus you making a one-time transaction and now the onus is on the smart contract versus it hitting your wallet all the time. I wouldn't want to do that. Um, but like, yeah, I've, I've tried to run the run the the gamut on that. But yeah, I think that that's where you see uh, the opportunity cost there. And you guys, whatever you want of that. I mean, I think if uh, <laughs> somebody will make a billion dollars, just give me a shout out. Ask him is just, just to give him, give me a shout out. For that. So that it's similar, but different than uh, something else I do know of. So on uh, one of my other podcasts that I do, I recently interviewed the uh, CTO of minds.com, uh, Mark Harding. And Minds is, their goal is mm -hmm. to be a decentralized Facebook. Like, everything's open source. You can run your own instance mm -hmm. of it. And they have a ERC-20 token that they've created that when you create content and you put it up, if you get interactions, you then get a tokenized, a certain amount of tokens, which you can then spend to promote more content of yours so it'd be seen more. Um, or I th I'm pretty sure you can cash that out somehow. Um, he and I just kind of talked on it very lightly uh, in my interview, but it would be interesting if, if that can be, could be extended further to where people like me, instead of just going to something and just like reading an article that somebody wrote, 
if I would have the ability to actually go, I really like what this guy's doing. I want to, you know, sponsor him, so to speak, with clicks. So I'm just not reading his. But when I do read it, then I transfer, uh, you know, some thousands of a token or whatever to him. I don't know if that's it's something mm -hmm. they're actually doing or something they're planning on doing. But I do think that mm -hmm. that's the future. Again, it's that decentralization to get away from the, the primary mm -hmm. points that are doing all the stuff themselves. Like we give them the money and then they do whatever they're going to do with it. Um, breaking it down mm -hmm. to the individuals being able to transfer between us as we feel necessary as, you know, I'm, you might, you might do a uh, stream that Jeff might watch and go, okay, yeah, that was really good. I rate that we're worth a dollar. I don't know. I could watch it the mm -hmm. next day and go, well, that stream was worth $5 to me. So like it allows the value transfer to be attuned to what the person actually gets out of it, not just this is a set rate if you want to read, you know, whatever. So the rate is a minimum instead of the just mm. the whole value. So if, sometimes on Humble Bundle you see this too. So if you want this class of stuff in the bundle, you have to donate at least $8.25, but you can choose to donate more if you want. So that way you're really you're able to support the independents uh, using the same model that you're supporting going to Wall Street Journal. I think the one part that I was trying to reconcile when thinking of that was I'm trying to make it as organic mm -hmm. as the click of I want to just go to New York or I click on a, like a a link off of Twitter that somebody that I know or respect says, hey, this was a good article. And I click it and it's like, hey, you need to pay or you need to log in through Facebook. And I'm like, damn it, I don't want to log into Facebook. You know, like, so, like, it needs to be, I want it to where I don't even have to think of it. Like, I can just play, pay this overarching, I can contribute to the overarching budget to it one time. And then until that spins out, and maybe that's through clicks, maybe that's through some kind of, uh, you know, auger, AMM, you know, AMM, uh, you know, automatic market maker uh, rate of what the going rate right now is for news articles or something. Um, and almost acts like a toll gate type of thing that's on the smart contract that it's a one-time thing. I have unadulterated access to all these things that I want. And then maybe at some point I've spent out and it's like, Oh, Hey, you need to up, up, you know, ramp up. But I have full autonomous access to all things on the internet, regardless of their thing. And I know that they're getting paid because they're a class. I of, gotcha. I don't call it a class of citizen, but it's a class of site. Because, I mean, there's news, there's entertainment, there's, you know, we can classify types of sites. And then if it becomes like part of Web3, it just becomes, you know, as part of the development infrastructure of it. Hey, you got to define this, what you are. And, oh, hey, you're, you're incentivized to do that because if you do classify your site as this thing, Anybody that shows up to your site, have your exit address here and you're going to get paid, right? You know, like that changes all kinds of things from a, a sourcing standpoint. So then people are just paying this overarching, I don't want to call it a tax, but you're, you're, you're no more paywalls, right? It's just, I pay for this class of news. I pay for this class of thing. And then everybody can start to, to uh, you know, get clicks from it. And that's kind of almost how advertising works in general for like Google and the bigger centralized entities where they take the whole budget supply, they cut out their part that they need for, for operations, they cut out their margin, and then this other thing is the ad revenue, you know, that's a pretty large size. Um, and then that is just done through this algorithmic way of looking at 
CPI, clicks per purchase, engagement push through. There's all these um, factors that that adjust what you're going to get paid from the engine, right? And that works on a centralized way right now. There's uh, and knowing some basis of how that that algorithm works. I have some basic understanding um, from the the code that that makes that that work. I'm taking the basis of its internal classification of what it considers particular social engagement and just turning that into like class of news. And then you have a Mm -hmm. supply budget of that would then be, but all that being on a smart contract, right? It sounds complex. It's not actually that complex. It's literally 16 to 20 class type identification, all tied to budget addresses within a smart contract. And then everybody in the world pays Mm -hmm. into those budgets. And based on your site, classification, you're now reverse paid out of that smart contract by engagement. And it triggers that smart contract with a key pair when you hit that site, you know, to to be one of the, since you are a paying in, you get effectively a, an issues, issuer's token um, that just keeps that relationship of how much you've spent. And then there's a ledger that's running maybe on a layer two, because it'd be so many transactions. You're talking the whole world potentially um, to where, it's just paying all those entities out and it's all just happening in the background, like a super micro transaction. Um, you, you could set up a framework from a monetization standpoint and it'd be, it'd be hundreds of millions of dollars because you have everybody, you know, uh, contributing something into it. Um, and then it equalizes everybody. It equalizes the cost for everybody. There shouldn't be class of price, you know, and it shouldn't be mm-hmm. extremely expensive and it should be ran by the algorithm, which then drives price down based on more and more being there because like um, you would have potentially, you know, billions of dollars that would be going to some of these companies, right. From getting all the hits and sites. But um, I don't know. I mean, it's just one of many things that could be tackled to automate that kind of paywall. How do you get paid out of it? You know, it takes care of like trying to raise some capital for some of this stuff, maybe for at least news sites and some of the entertainment stuff, you know, um, you could always spend more for it, but yeah. So I would anticipate, I anticipate there would be uh, subclassing within the content classes because New York Times or Washington Post would not want to be in the same class as the Baltimore Sun or something. Well, uh, yeah, they, they, could probably, they could probably have some more, pre- I mean, you'd also have probably maybe a premium subclass that, mm-hmm. that gives you, uh, um, you know, like Vice and some of these other things, which, which used to be where, you know, now they do a lot of stuff just to YouTube. Vice gets paid quite a bit for YouTube stuff, but like Vice does, you know, on the ground, middle of, you know, Nicaragua on, you know, like cocaine trafficking and they're like embedded and there's a lot of risk and they have all this, you know, like on the ground reporting and like New York Times writes about it from New York, right? I mean, (laughs) they call call 15 people, maybe every once in a while they'll make a trip now, but like there's a different class Mm -hmm. of content, you know, like maybe that that's premium because of the risks that are involved and um again that's more of a social what do you choose um type of thing but um you could do class plus a us 10 more percent you know or something like that but yeah i just i think anything that moves i guess the basic roll-up of that i was saying it in like three or four minutes is crypto has the empowerment to create a set of standards like a service registry and development to where it's automated and you could tap into that automation without a huge amount of overhead. And it has a hugely on rails 
things already built that I'm just calling and it, all these things happen that are a lot more, um, you know, organic. I mean, the, the Zed.run I brought up a, a few times now on the channel. Uh, if you haven't seen Zed.run, um, it's a shameless plug for them. No, no, uh, I don't have any affiliation with them, but it's it's an implementation of layer two on Matic that allows like real time horse betting and like it takes like Crypto Kitties and mixes it with like a game that renders in browser. And now you have betting on top of it. Um, but it's like, it was like three dudes in a shed, right? And like just knocking it out. And now there's, there's, <laughs> they've made like $80 billion in transaction revenues. And they just effectively made, they just perfected the delivery of layer two content in a way that was the package. You know, CryptoKitties tried it. Some of the, the NFT stuff's been trying it. But they have a fully functional, like, betting interface with, like, horse racing and breeding horses and all this other stuff. And it was just, you know, taking the open source nature of, like, what CryptoKitties did with their their ERC-721s with, like, minting, you know, nested unique assets that had stats and then calling those stats to do specific functions like you would do in any kind of game. And then gamifying the nft as it were um and then having the ability to you know take the horse have it as part of your wallet they kind of set the ground of like what engine and some of these other tokens are trying to do from a game asset asset, uh to where we'll get into a world with that where you're going to have like all these other games eve online uh wow all these things that you have like a super rare item and now you have a representation on chain of that game item database and now you could not even have to play WoW, but buy that because it, it's rare. And now it's setting in your wallet, signed to your wallet, you know, and you can bring up the little icon of it and then just actively trade that in an open market to maybe somebody that does play WoW or something. And you could have had it the whole time and not had anything to do with WoW, but you've you've taken that game asset out of the system effectively and it promotes all this other price discovery on it. Um and then maybe somebody buys it and then now can be reconnected to the game because the game's now reading their wallet and seeing, oh, what other unique items do you have? And they have a special bank in the game because it's reading your MetaMask wallet now. Um, there's all of those type of utility functions. Um, I mean, you could have like a, a car titles, all kinds of things that are digital representations of that and transfer of value. Um, that are going to be tied to that. And I mean, that, those are all the future states of that. And all needs to be developed, aren't developed right now. Maybe some people trying to, most people are trying to spend their own tokens and raise capital because of that, but actually not building the thing. Um, anymore, there's so much liquidity in like wrapped Ethereum and that kind of thing. You could go build something, leverage Matic, leverage Ethereum, leverage even Bitcoin for some of it, and then just have your pay addresses for the interactions, you know, so you don't need to go raise your own token, use what's there, use the open source nature there and get paid in those tokens that have established value that aren't going to go away. You're not getting that kind of sleazy, you know, like I'm making my own token thing. Um, kind of, you know, kind of thing. I mean, I was thinking that for the longest time, like, why don't I build like a BBT token that does some kind of like Oracle services? And I'm like, I don't need the token. Like I could still go build uh, you know, an Oracle service uh, that competes with Chainlink that provides like an entire service registry. I keep using service registry as an example, but like that you could go and call these services if you're building a, a smart contract app and you want to get like other connected sort of like weather data, geolocation data, um, all that kind of stuff, you know, um, uh, any kind of open source supply chain data stuff, you know, just on uh, shipping uh, channel services and stuff like uh 
like where the flight 24, a lot of that stuff that, you know, they, they make available from like flight data and all that kind of stuff. Just you'd have this list of services and you pay this micro transaction to get that onto, onto whatever app you're doing. And I'm just doing, I'm like part of your development team indirectly because I've just created all your whole service registry and you can call my service. Like, and like if you're building out your app, you're like, Oh, I'll just call that because I don't need to go build that. It's already exists. You know, like building those development um, micro services um, but on a representation on chain that you could just call. I mean, there's entire ideas of that, of like, well, what's microservices in, a, in any kind of architecture? If I'm, I could build the baseline stuff and just make it available for somebody to call. And then they can focus on the core requirement of their, their app and then just leverage cross chain. You have this whole concept of, well, we always talk about reusable code and stuff, right? Like, Mm -hmm. like I want to build one thing once and have 10 uses of it. You know, like all the things that we always talk about, like as developers, like, uh, you know, I want to use this across, you know, uh, I mean, we used to do this with, uh, like ozone widget framework, right. You know, like you'd have like this, you know, same button call or the same, uh, dashboard interface. And I'm just hooking up the, the back end to it. Um, because I'm just gonna use the framework that was a framework for it, or um, you know, uh, I mean, there's a whole bunch of life array, all those kind of things, you know, that that give you that baseline. Like those are the kind of things that are now coming under fruition on, you know, with smart contracts. We're on the second, third iterations of those. Um, I'm, I'm excited for stuff that's going to come to Bitcoin with that too, and just yeah, from a developer standpoint, there's all kinds of that now finally starting to come in. And you don't need your own, dude, you don't need your own token for that. By the way. <laughs> you can just put your, your, your developer address as part of the, the value stream, right? Like if you're calling this service and this fee, there's just a micro fee on this that you're paying to me, like for, for using this. And that's one fewer thing you now have to develop or manage or maintain or less infrastructure. And that makes all kinds of yeah, sense. Yeah, don't worry about trying to get listed anywhere. Mm-hmm. And like, I mean, I mean, a lot of people have done it on Ethereum just because, because the DeFi now gives you access to liquidity centers, right? Like if you go and spend an ERC-20 uh, token now, um, uh, Uniswap 3, PancakeSwap, all that stuff, that you can mint those and you're included on them. Like people can call, like I could go mint one tomorrow and you could go you could go pick it up on, on Uniswap, right? And it'll start to build price discovery. You could create a liquidity pair on it and all that. And I mean, there's thousands of tokens now on accessible on Uniswap because people can do that. But like, I mean, if you do that, you run in the U.S., you'll run arrest from the SEC, especially if you like rug people and like, I mean, or, you know, you like, you just can't go making tokens. You're, you're creating a security. Um, even if you're trying to wrap it as a utility, it's a lot more. So it's, it's just far easier to build something and then, tr- you know, have a, have effectively what we were just talking about, a paywall. Uh, but it's just a service cost, right? So if you're calling this service, you're just going to pay a micro fee on it. And then hopefully you get 10,000 you know, service calls. If you make it on something like Matic or something, you can have, it's not so much about the transaction fee. It's just this little service cost um, you know, that you'll have in there. And it's just like paying for an API service, right? If you're trying to get data from somebody and you're going to go, you get so many API calls for X amount of dollars. It's effectively the same kind of concept there. It's just operational expense at that point. It's just factored in. Well, yeah, you know, it's, it's a really lean for us, right? Because as a developer, you could literally just sit here, write it out, you know, set up your, uh, your, you know, um, I don't know, a lot of people that are development uh, on Ethereum, you know, you could set up your environment, um, your IDE environment for it, um, which depending on what you're doing, you can set up a couple different solidity and there's, um, you know, Ganache and um, 
uh, Truffle Suite and all that. It has a lot of the smart contracts. Anybody that's a developer that doesn't know um, about Ethereum development, you can go to truffle-suite.com. They're open source. You can download their, they have like a virtual uh, um, a blockchain. Essentially, it's a ganache. It's like a virtual Ethereum you can point your node to and write all your smart contracts, deploy smart contracts. It has a whole uh, uh, suite of things um, that allow you to test your smart contract against it before you deploy to mainnet. Um, kind of thing, and I mean, I'm just using Ethereum as an example. I mean, you could there are, you could do this with Cardano. I mean, Cardano doesn't smart contracts yet, but like uh, Polkadot has uh, stuff. I mean, it's just uh, again. I mean, I hate to say the Ethereum. They just have they have the the volume. They have the cross platforming connections to things. Uh, um, Cosmos is another good one with Tendermint. Um, the atom and they're they're going to have some interoperability but i mean we're eight to 12 months out we're going to have this next phase of interoperability we're in the DeFi kind of thing right now um the next i look at the next phase is going to be the interoperable phase so we're going to have these uniswap v3.1 to uh finance smart chain to um uh, you know cosmos to whatever and now if you have smart contracts on these other things, you'll be able to route to these other cryptos and uh, other services. Um, that's why when you hear, when you get caught up in this space and you hear the maximalist saying everything else is crap, everything's a shit coin <laughs> compared to, you know, Bitcoin. Um, there's so much development happening um, with good intentions. And the easiest way in one, a few lines that I tell people of like Bitcoin Biggest currency always going to be there. It's the foundation. However, the reason why you started getting Litecoin and some of these other things is because people want to influence some kind of change or have ideas, and they make something else. They fork it. They they can have influence on making those new features. A lot of these cryptocurrencies that are in your top twenty are trying to perform a function of some sort, and it's because they needed to have the influence on the system to be able to make those changes. Yeah. So it is literally no different than having multiple projects because you need to own that project and you need, you want to provide value in some way. So a lot of these uh, different projects that are doing that are doing it on those grounds. I mean, the developers that are there are not trying to be malicious. They're trying to build something and they have influence on being able to get that into their network. Um, why Dr. Gavin Wood moved away from Ethereum, from Vitalik, right? He went and made Polkadot. Uh, Charles Hodgson, also Ethereum founder, moved on and made Cardano, right? They had different ideas of how the platform should run. And lo and behold, they made their own platforms, you know, and inspired others to be part of it. It's not just them, right? They're just, you need a leader in things um, to give, not just direction. It's not the you know, totalitarian, right? It's more of like right. a vision and purpose and you know, sometimes it's just taking uh, when I would run projects, I'd walk in there and everybody's kind of doing their thing, but I'd make sure they have everything block tackle, you know, things for them and just get what they need. Um, and sometimes give them, a, you know, the inspiration, like, hey, we all know why we're here. Right. <laughs> you know, why, what we're trying to accomplish um, and, you know, give that, you know, the I was a real big thing of retrospectives. I mean, like good, bad, ugly and like be honest, be transparent, you know, like. If something sucks, like, let me know. Like, I think that's the way a lot of these development teams work, you know? So, um, yeah, that's where I'm trying to keep it, like, on the development side. You know, yeah, too. right. Yeah. yeah, that development side is one of the things that gets me excited for the future of, of cryptocurrencies because there's so many ingenuity or <laughs> wrong way to say that. There's so much ingenuity yeah. in coming up with, with the things that they see and the things are like, well, we could try this. We could also do this. Mm -hmm. And 
that's nice because it's it's building out the future because you know the, as the saying goes you know the future is what we make it uh-huh. and it's not just well this is the way we do things so we're going to keep doing it it's trying those new ideas it's branching out and saying okay well what could we possibly make that would be better that would provide something that would be more efficient or provide a better service that's one of the things that i really really love about cryptocurrency to to tie this back to kind of where we started the conversation um with you know the developers and then all the users um we started talking obviously with Ethereum, but to look to the other alternatives that are out there, you've mentioned some, what are some of the ones that you think kind of get it right in that they have that the developer, they're developing tools for the benefit of the people who are using the coin. And it's not just, I'm doing this because I'm doing what I want to do and I like it, but they actually see themselves as providing something of value that's not just money, so to speak. Yeah, I think I think there's different classes of it. I think that there's there's the proof of work, which try to balance their community in securing their coin because and it's a different class. It's a different engagement level. Um, so I'll first start with like proof of work coins. So you have some coins out there that are that um, that have leaned into proof of work. You have Dash. You have uh, that I think are trying to do. Uh, you know, good things are trying to become dollar, you know, like a digital dollar, as it were. They've done a lot of grassroots on the ground stuff. They set up a governance model to uh, bid a lot of their actions out of like, hey, we're gonna, here's our here's our list of things we can do. Vote on this with 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 your dash and then we'll release that to developers. So I like that kind of basic concept. Decred did the, kind of the same thing. So from a development and, uh, you know, Decred. um is also proof of work chain where they use the governance of the uh, the, the assets that are either donated or part of part of the payout of the chain to drive development. So you have like the incentives kind of aligned around what the community wants. Um, so you have a few coins like that. Um, Raven coins, another good example of that. I always talk about Raven coin, fair market launch, loan of Bitcoin. Um, with the intention is to try to take on like stock markets, right? Where, uh, you know, you look at the origination of the funders of that being overstock.com, Patrick Byrne, very pro, like open up the system when it comes to stocks, because there's a lot of crap that goes on with that. And a lot of stuff we don't see and saying you could transfer all this over there. So a lot of the development went around, you know, STO, stock traded options, restricted assets, try to be SEC compliant. So you had a chain that's kind of but very super open source. Uh, all their development calls are done publicly. Um, uh, they're, they're sourcing uh, open source developers a lot like that. Ethereum has tried to do a lot of that. I mean, they have open calls. Um, there's a lot of fragmented, uh, you know, got the client folks um, that are, you know, Ethereum wanted multiple client implementations. Most most cryptocurrencies have like a client, right? Like almost all of them just have a single like Bitcoin Core. Uh, uh, Ravencoin has Ravencoin Core, right? One client, right? Is the the daemon, right? And then Ethereum is like we're going to have a JavaScript Core. We're going to have a, a Python version. We're going to have this because we want all these different uh, uh, IDEs to be able to interact and build things on top of, and just all circumstantially call the call the smart contract. But they wanted different interfaces. Um, so yeah, obviously Ethereum, uh, Cardano taking a different approach. Um, Cardano is, is trying to be a research paper. I'm, I'm fine with Cardano. I like Charles likes to get on there a lot. The problem is, is that they are like, they're like Ethereum, but times three on slowness when it comes to like getting anywhere. Right. Because they're going to go through phases of, uh, uh, peer review. 
And it's kind of what it's like when you I've had develop I've had good, phenomenal developers working for me in my, in my life that that have I mean MIT graduate I had a guy that literally wrote their algorithm for Orbitz for uh, booking travel like the guy was the guy that at Orbitz that wrote the algorithm and all ultimately went to Kayak and did it um, and that's a very complicated like algorithm to write worked for me on a transportation program for uh, DoD and just like super brilliant but trying to get um, and it was a team of folks that did that, but just was like, like if I didn't give, like, here's where I need to, to end. Like it, he is so good and so brilliant. He finds new ways to do it all the time, but that could be perpetually forever. So it's like, I need to have phases. So like, that's why I look at Cardano is like, there's a lot of smart people that work on it, but it's like an engineering project that just kind of needs somebody to say, okay, here's what it is. And here's when we're going to go live with this. And then let's start building the other things on top of it. Um, that's where kind of Cardano is, is like, it's a peer review engineering thing. Um, uh, Polkadot's now getting into its thing, into its, I, I guess it's, it's movement forward. Um, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to, you know, seeing what, what development comes onto it. Uh, I'm still very skeptical of like proof of stake stuff yet. So like, I don't put a huge amount in the proof of stake stuff yet, but I think that, from an interoperability as things start to come on, um, I think there's opportunity there. And I think of the last one I would say is Cosmos, because when you look at the rest of the coins and the stack there, most of them are tokens that are uh, providing a utility or service for uh, on Ethereum. Like when we talk Chainlink or uh, any of those, uh, there's a few other ones um, that I don't have a lot more familiarity with. I've seen moving up a lot. I think it's Solarin is one, uh, SOL um, is one of the tokens, but uh, you know, that, that I think is, is coming up, but like, you know, those are the main ones. I'm very pro proof of work because of the, the foundation on the security layer and stuff. But um, yeah, that's where I would say some of those are at. Okay. Really. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, and thank you yep. Carter so much for taking the time to, to sit down with Jeff and I and to chat about this. Um, I really appreciate, as I said at the beginning, your insight into crypto and that you actually dig into the technology and try to explain it to people because it, it's a very complex thing. Oh, yeah. And Love I, it. Again, I get the hype. You know, we all love it. It's good. But I think for people to really understand and really realize and recognize everything that crypto does offer, you, you have to get into that deeper layer and you have to dig in and actually understand what's going on. And then you can go, oh, wow. OK, yeah, this really is the future. There's so many options and opportunities here um, for the listeners. Uh, links, as I said, for all of Carter's stuff, his YouTube, his site, his Twitch will be down in the show notes. If you liked the real talk that you heard about crypto like we did in this episode, definitely check out what he's done. We have only scratched the surface of the depth of crypto that he has gone into on his content, so definitely check it out. Carter, thanks again for taking the time. Thank you so much, Carter. All right, guys. Thanks, my dudes.